And I had never been on a split board before. So I, uh, oddly enough, the only split board I had was the last board that Craig had developed with Burton. I had bought it used at a giant ski swap sale. And so I bought this old Burton Frontier split board that when I went in 11, I mean, Craig passed away in 03. So the thing was at least, you know, I think it was like an eight year old split board that was still brand new. Like it was being sold at the ski swap with the sticker on it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of Dark Starts, your backcountry splitboarding podcast. This time, we talked with two-time Olympic gold medalist Seth Westcott about how and when he got started with snowboarding while growing up in Maine, his first splitboard tour in Antarctica, and what's happening at Winterstick. So kick back on the front porch, and let's drop in with Seth Westcott. You know we're going on, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Go outside! <laughs> He's just sitting by the door. Hold on. Yeah. Just, I'm going to kick him out. Hold on. All right. Get the fuck out. Come on. Right on. Okay. Let's drop in with Seth Westcott of Winterstick. Seth, it's a pleasure to have you on today. And uh, what's going on in your world right now? Uh, I am... Sitting in the basement in my wax room, and uh, just a rainy day in Whistler. <laughs> well, that's kind of what happens when, in the summertime. Yeah, it's actually it's well today. It's nice because so far we haven't been in the whole forest fire uh, danger zone this summer, and the last few weeks have been super hot and dry. So it was kind of nice. Yeah. Took the dogs for dogs for a walk nice. this morning. It was kind of like a breath of fresh air that you can like be like, okay. Yeah. Everything isn't going to burn down for the next few weeks. <laughs> right. I know I was out there in uh, 2015 for the Camp of Champions with uh, Ken. Yeah. And uh, I remember coming down the mountain with my son and being like, what's going on over there? It was out by Pemberton. Oh, yeah. It was just the snow. The smoke was just bellowing. It was like a volcano was going down. And it was like, oh. And then I ended yeah. up spending a week there. It actually, I think it hit on the Tuesday. And then I was there for the weekend. And Vancouver was a shit show with smoke. And yeah, nuts. Yeah, summer summer of sixteen was my first summer out here, and I had not experienced anything like that. Where you just get into that, like it sits in for a couple weeks, yeah. you know, like whether it's like the outflow winds blowing the the smoke this way, or you know, like well, I mean, we had stuff burning all around us for a couple summers. Like the summer that my daughter was born, the last couple weeks before she arrived was just gnarly in August. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It I know. puts We've, it in perspective. Yeah, coming from out <laughs> east, both of us, like yeah. I'm Ontario of Maine. And then yeah. <clears throat> I moved out to Alberta to work in the oil patch. And yeah, my first year here was nuts. Like we were literally 35 kilometers from a fire ripping at 35 kilometers an hour at the camp. Yeah. And they're like, we might yeah, need yeah. to execu- like evacuate all like thousand people of you guys here that are on site and the wind changed and it blew away. But you know, ash is wow. dropping on you. It feels like, you know, doomsday oh, yeah. is upon us, like ash is dripping on us and you can't totally. see more than 10 feet in front of you. And, that yeah, was, that was like, wow, forest fires are real out here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and it's funny because, you know, like I'd always basically been to the Pacific Northwest other than a few hood trips and one black home summer trip way back, uh, you know, usually been out here in the winter. So you right. like get the perspective. You're like, oh, it's 
rainforest everywhere and like you know like you just kind of have that feeling because of all the moss on the trees and the you know how prolific the forests are but then yeah it's gnarly when you go a few weeks you know and you're into the 30s and stuff out here in the summer and it's like and no moisture it, it gets scary and then lightning hits because it comes yeah. off the ocean and next thing you know the yeah shit's yeah going crazy we yeah, just had that last night here my house rumbled we were on a call with somebody out of the u.s and darren three of us were on a video call and all of a sudden the whole house rumbled and they looked at me darren's out of power but my house <laughs> yeah. isn't but the lightning is just smashing next to me it was pretty awesome oh yeah yeah wicked so that's that's life in Worcester in, on, in the West Coast is either your beautiful splinters or you got smoke in the summer. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm still <laughs> learning. <laughs> yeah. I know. Me too. I've been out here 12 years, 15 years now. So yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into this a little bit. Let's get into who Seth is uh, from the beginning. I know you have your influence of snowboarding comes from skateboarding in the late 80s. Kind of the same background as I had. You just took a different path and pushed it way harder than... <laughs> I did, but I wanted to do what you did. I think we talked about that a little bit. Watching yeah. a little more about who Seth is, background, it's like a lot of where I wanted to go. Yeah, one of the interesting things to me about you, Seth, is I didn't realize, I thought you were, I thought you hailed from Maine, like as in you were born in Maine, but you're actually, you were born in Durham, North Carolina. Hey? Well, I was. I it's, it's funny because I don't have any memories of being outside of Maine. Um, I was about 15, 15 to 18 months old when my parents moved back. And my mom is six generations Mainer. My dad's multi-generation from New Hampshire. Um, but they both, out of New England, got teaching jobs down in the south. Uh, my dad was at the time like the youngest uh ncaa division one uh coach he was like 23 years old when he took over the track and field program at nc state um and then my mom was my and he and my mom met in college but he was a few years older so then when my mom uh graduated she came down and then they were you know they were there uh like for well they they were there my dad coached there for 12 years and then kind of uh reminiscent of a lot of the backward stuff we're seeing in the united states right now um i think my parents wanted to raise us in a place that didn't have um as much prejudice and uh you know the racial problems that were going on and because they were both from new england they kind of knew that that was a more peaceful place you know like half my dad's track and field team were African-Americans. And, you know, my dad would tell me stories of like being turned away from restaurants when they're on trips with his college kids and stuff. And just the, the hatred and, um, all the prejudice that was going on down there. I think after a while, um, just really wore on him and they decided that, you know, they didn't want to raise their kids in a place that was like that. Crazy. Yeah. So Maine, I mean, obviously New England and Maine, a lot quieter on that front. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, and, you know, kind of a lot, It, you know, in a lot of ways it avoids all those things because it's so monoculture up there. But, right. um, but nonetheless, I think, you know, I think both my parents, um, you know, there was still, I think in those days there was still really the divide of like, the North and South and who was on which side of the civil war that that carried over for a long time. And, uh, I think my parents didn't want me to have to grow up around, uh, 
the backwards ideals that were still there in the South. So, yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. I went to college in Florida and got mm-hmm. a pretty good taste of that. Yeah. So snowboarding. Um, so your your skateboarding careers or career yeah. <laughs> introduction to it. Hey man, we all thought yeah. we were gonna be pro. Worry. <laughs> exactly. Back in the Bones Brigade days, it was dude, search, seemed easy. Search, it seemed easier to <laughs> right search for animal chin. I was talking to Darren yeah. about that the other day. I'm like, dude, he's like, why is you know what's up with that? He doesn't come from that background where I was. That kid right. getting beat up with my my skateboard, my Santa Cruz. Oh yeah. <clears throat> That's my next, actually, my next tattoo is going to be my Corey O'Brien, Santa Cruz, nice. Screaming Hand with the, uh, oh, Screaming Hand, sorry, the, I already have that tattoo, but the um, <laughs> Grim Reaper with the Ball of Fire. Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, that was my board I got. I loved it. Yeah. It was, yeah, launching ramp. I was on my Sunday of the day, skate, started skateboarding. So funny to hear my kid yeah. go, hey, Dad, I'm going outside the skate. And I'm like, yeah, dude, do it. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, we just, I'm all stoked because we just, we've been doing a house renovation on the place in Whistler. Um, and we just put in a mini ramp in the backyard. So for the first time in my life, I'm actually no like way. the owner, the owner of a skate ramp. Dude, that's sick. <laughs> other other yeah, than that's a launch a, ramp, right? You know, right. My yeah, driveway exactly. was always full of launch ramps too, as a kid. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm 44 years old and I have a half pipe now. This is that's my next Dude, venture. That's as well. I need, that's a, I need a yard to do that. Is it? Is it a 20 footer? No, <laughs> no. We actually, it's unfortunately, it's only 14 wide because we have a. Uh, limited space in a Whistler neighborhood and we had to squeeze it in between the house and a stone wall that was immovable. So no, that's good. But, that's all good. But I just, just yeah, we did a little like three and a half foot high mini ramp. Nice. Perfect. This is like how adult I feel now. We, uh, when we moved into the house, there was a like five cases of leftover cedar shingles. So we even like sided the mini ramp. So it matches the house. <laughs> no, no way. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like this is full. Of, this is like adult. <laughs> right, right. Like it's, you're not building ramps out of stolen plywood or like, dude, I, I have, I have a good story about that. We used lived in Pickering, Ontario, Ajax area. And we were building a ramp, in my buddy's backyard. And, yeah. uh, Oh, I'm going to say this. We, uh, <laughs> Oh no. Oh no. You sure you want to? I don't care. Um, right. so they were building up the Ajax area. They were building new housing, all these new buildings or new, uh, housing developments were going up and they were putting all these big signs, right? The big, like come by the yeah. house here. It's got like four layers of paint on them. So we found yeah, a spot yeah. where they're stashing them all. <laughs> and I had a little S10, little white yeah. S10. It was the bandit on the side. And like, of course, how how ironic! So we're stealing every night. We're fucking just jacking all these pants, these pa- these uh, boards, and denailing them. And, yeah. And then and then I'm like, we need some real sh- real good fucking wood. I'm like, well, fuck it, let's just go steal some. So I roll up to the to the local like Rona with the back of the truck. Oh, no. I roll up the truck and we're just like, yeah, we're looking to get this. We fucking load up the little two by fours and just drove away. <laughs> Crazy. Bleep, bleep. Ah, fuck it. Uh, I, well, I wasn't. I was not involved, but my mom actually has a funny story because, like, when say when I was still in junior high, these guys that I skated with through the college, who one of them was, you know, one of my mom's college kids that my mom really liked, they had like slowly been like robbing all these building materials from around town. Nice and. uh and the guy, Fran, had talked to my mom on a weekend to borrow an 18-passenger van from the college to transport it like an hour away. <laughs> so my mom actually drove all the stolen lumber that ended up becoming 
like one of the only good skate ramps within like an hour of my house, which is pretty funny. She's like, I, you know, I was always curious where they got all that wood from. <laughs> she unknowingly, she was, she was the wheel. Oh, yeah. Too totally. Innocent. Too innocent. Yeah. That's awesome. So now you funny. got, you got your mini ramp sided with the cedar shingles yeah. to match a house. Now you got to give some spray paint cans to the kids and let them start yeah. tagging it. Exactly. That's yeah. sweet. Nice. Yeah. Did you get that? So you mason, masoned it? Oh, uh, we did. I uh, did skate light, so mm. pretty, pretty stoked. So, what do you? What's your plans for the winter with that thing? You gonna know, put a tarp over it? Yeah, I'll just cover it in the yeah. winter. Yeah, you're gonna have to. There's so much. Snow. Yeah, totally. Right on. Well, let's get into that. Let's get into a little bit more about uh, when you first started seeing snowboarding. Yeah. Well. Um, so. I mean, skating started, I, my dad actually had like an old seventies banana board. Mm. And, uh, so when I was probably, I don't know, about six, I, he didn't use it anymore. Like he had used it when he was in North Carolina. And then when I was like six, I found it on this top shelf in the barn. Like it had been put away for, you know, four years or something since they'd moved from North Carolina. So like I started bombing hills on that thing, this old red banana board. Nice. And then a couple of years later, you know, got like a, it was just like a horrible, <laughs> it's called the skate joy. It's kind of like a, like lower quality Veriflex or something, you know? Oh, and the, and, uh, the edge, those, those black edges that used to be out the black snows. Yeah, well, no, 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 this was a skate, but it was oh. just like a bad skateboard, like where oh, like the okay. bearings weren't even sealed, you know, so oh, like you'd, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd skate for like two days and all your bearings would fall out of your wheel and you'd have to find them all and oh. rebuild your, um, but so those days of skating led me to know like a generation older than me. And, uh, there were basically four guys that started uh snowboarding in my little town which was like an hour south of the resort at sugarloaf and uh so i i we had a little hill in our town called titcomb mountain kind of like blackcomb but it's funny that it's called titcomb but um <laughs> but c-o-m-b you know and uh the we had it had two little it was like 400 feet had two little t-bars and so like i had just started i'd been skating before i started skiing i skied for like a year and then in the second year um these guys came to do a demo uh one night during night skiing and uh i just followed them around the whole night and that would have been like uh i was trying to think like spring of 86 um and so i was just like holy crap you know like that's what i want to do because i'd already been skating for a few years right. and uh because i knew these guys like they were all in high school when i was like in sixth grade they were probably <laughs> freshmen freshmen or sophomores mm -hmm. but i knew them from skating and so like i called one of them up the next day and was like dude can i buy your snowboard and he was like oh of course you know because he was just looking to trade up so i bought this burton woody off of him which it was funny because, you know, no edges and mm -hmm. being in Maine, it was like brutal unless it had snowed recently, but we were mostly just backyard snowboarding at that point. So, um, and I even remember like friends that were going to buy elites and stuff like a year later. And I was like, no man, you don't want the edges like trying to talk. About <laughs> That's, that was my first board actually at Performer Elite. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So started, um, it would have been that, 
I got one day in that spring. I bought the board from him, like I had a paper route at the time, and nice, um, nice. he charged he charged me eighty bucks. And uh, so for eighty bucks, I had a Burton Woody with a custom paint job that he had like painted over all the graphics except for the little Burton Mountain logo. Nice, um, the beginning of the addiction. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, it, it pretty much just took over my life from there. <laughs> The chase of the glide, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, then you <clears throat> you start riding, you're doing locally, just getting, loving it. And then what do you do from there? You kind of get into the contesting world or what? how does that kind of merge for you? Yeah, I mean, New England at the time had a series called the New England Cup, which is like where like, you know, like Brushy and Richards and Jason Ford, Noah Brandon and all those guys came out of. <laughs> okay, and yeah. uh, so... I didn't, I wasn't in that, like they kind of all graduated to the world cup basically like the year before I Mm -hmm. did my first event, but Mm -hmm. the new England cup came to Sugarloaf and, uh, I competed in the half pipe there. And, uh, that was just kind of like, as soon as like seeing that there was a scene in new Mm -hmm. England, I was Mm -hmm. like, Holy cow. And then, one of those four guys that I had seen on that original uh, demo night was um, on like from my hometown and he actually started a skate shop like a year after that. Nice, and so nice. then I became like, you know, the, the little kid who would hang uh, around yes, the shop every, the same you know, thing, like dude. ride, ride yeah. my bike like 10 miles to the shop yeah. and like buy a, a sticker from him and, and like out. just sta- yeah. yeah stare at the boards and like, Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he got on Burton for a couple of years and like, you know, was the first one that I knew who like went down to compete at the U S open at Stratton. And so he would be like telling me stories and he became a, a bit of a mentor for me for quite a few years and is still a lifelong friend. And, uh, nice. So eventually somehow, you know, my parents thought he was respectable or res- respectable enough respectable, that they would, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> trustworthy. Let, yeah, trustworthy enough that they started or, letting me like cross it, state lines with him and travel around oh, wow. and do some contests. So nice. like, I, when like I was they just want you to get the hell out of the house. Well, it was a combo there, and then it was also <laughs> like my you know my parents went through a divorce, so there was probably a little bit of like lost oh, communication yeah. between the two of them. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so how, I started, how old were you? Then? I started. Um, I was probably thirteen when i started driving around with my buddy tony and uh now, and now he'd be like who's this fucking dude with this young guy like what's going on there? nowadays oh, that right? <laughs> oh yeah totally well right. n- yeah exactly because he was uh he would have been out of high school at that he probably was like 18 19 at that point but yeah it's kind of funny like you know you're just like leave on a friday afternoon and show back up sunday night and your parents are like no questions asked. Well, it comes <laughs> Just, down. It comes. But down that, to, that's our generation of parents. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say when we talk with Ken Ken Ockenbach, Yeah, yeah. He, he goes like, you know, oh, you ski? Fuck that! Come snowboarding, and then it's like you become right. friends. Going, hey, you snowboard, dude? Let's be friends because yeah. no one else is snowboarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every day, all you want to no, do is talk about snowboarding. Totally. And that and that was <laughs> the thing. Like the first time I ever went to Sugarloaf. Um, cause those guys did the demo at my little ski hill, nice. and then it was like the typical thing where the manager at the time was like, Oh fuck, those kids are going to want to ride lunch trays here next. And so it was kind of like <laughs> basically like a, over my dead body. Are they ever going to do this after this demo? And, uh, as 
things go like, yeah, we didn't get to snowboard at that little hill in my town. Um, and literally when that mountain manager died, then <laughs> snowboarding started being allowed there. But in a way it was a good thing because it drove us to go 45 miles up the road to Sugarloaf, which was like a real resort and had a scene. And, you know, like the first day that I went there to ride on a chairlift, it was, you know, exactly like what Achenbach talks about. Like you saw a snowboarder go under the lift and you're like, Hey, wait there, you know? Mm -hmm, And then, mm -hmm. and I, I had guys from that very first day that I still know to this day, like one of them, we ended up being college roommates. Like, you know, like it just, it, it, that tightness of that late eighties snowboard scene was insane. Like mm-hmm. as soon as you connected with someone, you were like, that was all you talked about. And then so it was... how, how funny, how funny and ironic is that's how Darren and I met. I tried, right I tried to yeah, sell yeah. my first split board at the shop. Cause I was hanging out at the local shop at 44 years old. You <laughs> got... like, I'm not, you know, 43, 44. That's how you get discounts, dude. How do you get in and get things for cheaper? Well, you start hanging out with the bo- the owner and you start riding yeah. with the owner and, Totally. And I was it, I was the fifty year old rat coming in. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're looking at a split board? I got one to sell you. And I had a, yeah. I had my Rome one one sixty five, and here I am five foot six at one hundred yeah, yeah. maybe seventy pounds then, and it was too big of a board. And then we ended up yeah. hooking up again at uh, our kids were having a, a snowboard or a ski day with the schools. I'm like, oh, I remember you from the shop. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Next thing you know, we're like chatting and <clears throat> yeah. a lot more in common. We're both from Ontario, both like Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. Let's go to the cup. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's just how exactly what you're saying. Like, oh, you ride, you ride. Yeah, you're over 40. Yeah, I'm over 40. Let's, you know, yeah, yeah. Next thing you know, we're like, here we are doing a podcast. Yeah. Like, literally almost a year, <laughs> year and a bit later. Totally. That's cool. So I get yeah, it. It's, yeah, it's funny. It's like, I don't know. You know, like, I, I really think that time in the sport was a magic time. And mm-hmm. it's not that there's any less magic in it now. It's just that it was so unique, you know, like my, I, so I moved schools, uh, at the end of fourth grade, moved to a new town and the first day of school in fifth grade, like myself and one other guy who happened to also be a last name that started with W. So we ended up in the same homeroom. Nice. Um, with the alphabetical stuff. Um, yeah. but we were the only two who showed up to the first day of fifth grade with a skateboard. Nice. And so it was just like instantly you're like, yeah, you're my buddy. You're my buddy. And then, exactly. uh, kindred spirits off exactly. the hop. Exactly. Oh, totally. And, and it's so funny because it's like, now I'm the godfather of his two sons and like we've you know like have a lifelong friendship but it literally started from that moment at the start of first grade where it's like you know a school of 400 kids and you're the only two who show up with a skateboard you're just like yeah (laughs) that was me that was me you're my clan yeah exactly that happened yeah same thing yeah our paths aren't much different except you just took off way better than i did (laughs) and faster (laughs) yeah well but you know like those early days in new England were really cool because you know, I like that generation that was ahead of us, the influence that they had. Mm -hmm. And then because Burton was in new England, um, and then with the open being at Stratton, like, so I, I went my first open, my dad took me and my buddy, Johnny, who was the one from fifth grade, uh, took us down in 1991. And, uh, that was, you know, the fact that we could like drive somewhere and I, I don't even know what I was conceptualizing we were going to see. I mean, I'd already been having the magazines for years, so I right. should have known, but it right. was like, 
I remember walking through this big open way uh, at Stratton. And as soon as we got up on the snow, this guy is walking by and I was like staring at his Sims board, you know, and I was just like, what the hell is that? You know? And I like, then I like go from the board up to like his face and it's Palmer. And you're just like, <laughs> you know, it's like Palmer's, it was his, his first pro model with the American flag. And you're mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. like, I'd only ever, I hadn't even seen, well, I mean, I guess I'd seen a couple of the black top Terry Kidwells at that point, but right. like mostly like, you know, it was like somehow I had the disconnect that I didn't realize that those guys were going to be there. And then like that day, you know, Jimmy Scott ends up winning, but it's like Craig in the finals, like, just like, you know, you're like sat there dumbfounded for the whole day watching like every snowboard hero that you'd ever seen in the magazines, like riding there mm-hmm. in front of you. And then like, as soon as the contest's over, then you can go drop in the pipe because it's just there. And right. that was how it was in those days. And then there's like a huge session afterwards. And, um, and so like that, I think that accessibility that new England seemed to have that you could like drive to the Burton factory and you could like see these guys once a year, right. Just created such a scene at that point. And because guys like, Richards and Brushy and Jason Ford and all those guys had come out of New England, you were kind of like saw that there was a path to like follow their path. So it just made it seem like doable. Um, <laughs> yeah, it made it seem doable. Exactly. It, yeah. it didn't seem like it was unattainable. It just seemed like, okay, like if I do this, then I can do exactly what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Seeing is believing. That's the yeah, bottom totally. line, right? Totally. <clears throat> they can do it. I can do it. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. I, I was I was in Toronto. I didn't realize everything was so close. You know, when you don't go to Vermont, right. it's five yeah, hours yeah. away, but, you know, I didn't have an older buddy. I was, right. I was the badass guy with all the friends who had cars, but none of them yeah. were, were watching yeah, Project yeah. 6 like I was. I obsessed over right. that movie. That was like the foundation of me being like, I just let Darren watch the other day. I let him. I yeah, yeah. Him. I told him about it. <laughs> just like Whiskey. I'm like, you want me to watch Whiskey too? And then we watched it. Right. I'm like, I did that shit. I broke bottles over my head. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. We're in. Mo- we're in mo- <laughs> so did we. We were yeah, all like, right? That yeah. For us, like dude. that was kind of like when I came back to CVA after two years of college. Mm-hmm. Like my all my roommates, like that was like maybe it was probably whiskey one or something. I don't mm-hmm. know because it would have been like winter in ninety five, ninety six, and. uh yeah, we were, you know, you're like partying at night and you get all upset. You're like, oh, I got to do this. Whack. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was bald. Well, well, still am For bald, me but... too, the snowboard movies, like right. my mom, uh, my mom for Christmas, and I don't know for sure if it would have been like 89 or 90, but she got me Snowboarders in Exile. That would have been 89. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. And like that idea of like seeing Roach and Damien and all those guys that like you could act like that was the first time for me that I thought about like traveling the world was a thing with this. Like not that I thought I was going to do that at that age, of course, but you're like, holy cow, like these guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny now because like I, I flash back to that film all the time, like on pow days at black home and then like seeing where they would have been doing the flips like oh, under seventh heaven and right. all that stuff you know you're like that kind of i don't know there was a reggae song on one of those and roach is just like riding pow in those trees up above uh seventh heaven you're like oh yeah like it's kind of cool to 
be that full circle like yeah. 30 years later right well if you listen, <laughs> yeah. listening to decade from uh mac dog films there's always there's a foo fighter song and i can't remember yeah. the name right now but john summers is in the backcountry in whistler and he's just fucking laying a huge rooster tail coming off this one roller and as soon as yeah. i hear that song i get i'm doing it right now i'm getting goosebumps and i just see that oh, yeah. spot and him riding and i'm like fuck dude that's all i want to do that's yeah. all I want to do. I just want to ride fucking pow like that and run big lines, playing totally. full fighters and just getting at it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, yeah. So pumped. So it's it's a fucking honor to have you on, man. I can't it's it's amazing. I know right we've on. chatted before and I'm so stoked to have you because Absolutely. Your your journey is exactly kind of everybody's dream, man. Yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. I mean I it was it was funny because both my parents were in education. You know, they both worked at colleges and universities, and and uh, so I I knew by the time I got out of high school, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. But um, I so good. My parents were like, "There's no way you're not going to school." So I kind of like, you know, again, it's like that different age of parents, like where it was awesome that there was no cell phones and stuff like that back in the day, because right. like I I just like I. Yeah filled out one college application it was to western state colorado and really like the only reason i did that was because of crested butte and i like i remember like early shots in the day back in the day of like guys both free riding and like you know the butte was one of the early places that had a pipe which they didn't end up having by the time i went to college there but um (laughs) but i was just kind of like yeah whatever like if i can get to colorado then i can just kind of like do whatever i want and i won't be under like parental uh vision so <laughs> i, I like, love it so you're like yeah yeah folks i'll go to college and study I'll go to college. Uh, snowboarding yes. that's how my right. shit started too buddy i took yeah. my college money i went to school i took animal health care <laughs> and all it was was what? really was really to become a fucking a, a, a secretary at a vet's office is yeah. what i was taking really um, yeah, but then I I started hanging out at the local skateboarder shop in King, Kingston, Ontario. Yeah, uh, and dude, I just harassed the guy. And then when I bought an iron, I waxed my first snowboard. I almost burnt the co- the whole fucking face. <laughs> it was so hot. The inserts came yeah. up, and then I'm going to the, and then the pin popped out of the of the iron, and I'm like waiting for the rep to show up. He shows up, and uh, I just give this guy the gears, man. He's like, dude, what are you done? What are you doing after college? And I'm like, I don't know whatever he's yeah. like, well, come work for us so that's how my started because it was a fucking rat i went i did the hood yeah rat. i just hung out of the oh, yeah. shop yeah same thing spent all my money uh college money going at the end of the year i'm like mom i need some food dad i need some food because i'm out <laughs> snowboarding like why are you back in toronto all the time like because right. i was snowboarding with my buddies and then i ended up going to ottawa you know eastway a couple times on my own and just to yeah. get some better snow and do some big gaps spinning threes and back then right yeah yeah, yeah, that's so good. So yeah, so then bring us into where. So you you see these guys, these contests. You're moving on. You get you get to see a U.S. Open and you meet all. Yeah, them. well, so then, uh, yeah, like so then, like, well, the thing was was like the right up the you know where Sugarloaf was up the road. Uh, you know, Mark Fawcett was the first snowboarder to go there, and then the second year, uh, Mark ha- basically like brought Jeremy Jones in. And so Jeremy ended up being the year ahead of me in high school there, but I got to like, you know, for a few years interact with those guys around the hill and stuff. And then they, you know, they were like a big part of the inspiration to go and compete and stuff too. Um, 
And so then... So is that the Academy at CVA? Yeah, they yeah. were at CVA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, the idea that that was... That, like, the Academy was, like, 42 miles from my mom's house. So I would, like, hitchhike to the Holy mountain crap. all the time. Yeah, yeah. And th- those guys would be riding there. And, like, you know, they were also not just racing at that time like they were still like riding freestyle and like people would be hiking the half pipe together and stuff like that so it just those guys were an inspiration and so then i i got a scholarship to go there well i got picked up by burton like probably sophomore year of high school um which was you know the first year of brushy's pro model um like i was down in uh bolton valley vermont at a half pipe contest and i was riding like a three-year-old Craig Kelly at that point, but I won, you know, I'd, I'd won my age group at a bunch of pipe events so far, but I hadn't, um, like that was the first time like where, you know, I was 15, but I won all the age groups. So like I beat the 18 year olds, oh, wow, and 20 yeah. year olds and stuff like that. And nice. so the, the, uh, Chris Copley, who was the Burton rep at the time just brought me down to the van after the event. Cause my, my Craig Kelly was like, beat and t-nutted and like <laughs> he was kind of like and and i'd beaten a bunch of his rep riders and stuff that day and he was just like come with me to the van you know so that was um come to me with so, old boy for some candy right yeah exactly so he, I, I got the uh the burton uh brushy's trout board and then oh, uh so and then so they iconic. you know totally and then he connected me with uh, Mike Lavecchia, who was the Burton team manager at the time. And so then that, that relationship started stuff. Um, and then my first, it was like, so from being at the open in 91 to, I went to the open to compete for the first time in 94 as a senior in high school, um, and ended up, these were in the days where you had like the prequals and stuff. So there were so many rounds to go through. Um, and I ended up, uh, making it through to the final day, ended up in the semifinals, uh, didn't make the final, but it was funny because I, I was 21st and I always forget the order of whether Brushy was 22nd or if he was 20th, but it was like Mike Bassich, Jeff Brushy and I, were like it was like, they were the two on either side of me. Right. And so he, here I was as a senior in high school and I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah I can do this. Like if I'm getting to this level with these guys right. who were, who were still my idols. You right, know? right. Right. And, uh, and that was a cool, like that open in 94, um, like Ross powers and I basically grew up competing against each other full time in half pipe, like from the time that we were, you know, 13, 14 through high school. And then later on, like on world cup and on the U S team together and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, but that year, like he and I, um, we like, we had started doing back-to-back sevens in the green mountain series events, things like that. And so it was like, you know, both of us were doing back-to-back sevens in the open that spring of 94, which like almost none of the pros were doing. (laughs) So we were both there as like high school kids. Like what year was that again? You know, 94. 94. Um, so it was like pretty er- like, you know, like I had a cab nine in pipe by that point too. Oh, like I learned that that winter. And so like boosting. Ross, and, but Ross and I really had like pushed each other through all the new England events. Cause basically like he was going to Stratton mountain school. I was at CBA. Um, and for a few winters at that point, I had been traveling on the weekends with CBA from the events. And so like we would, basically like he would win or I would win. And we pretty much like traded off in half pipe events 
like for those three years kind of building up to that in new England. So it was like, we, as you know, buddies and as competitors, like really pushed each other to that point. And then that year at nationals, we went out, uh, to June mountain in California. Um, and he ended up winning nationals and I ended up crashing. And that was like when the U S team was named for the Mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, to this day, will always chalk up, like, being malnourished <laughs> to not making the U.S. Sapphire <laughs> team right off. Because oh, I went to Nationals I went to nationals for the week with, like, $32 worth of money to eat. So, like, <laughs> I, was on, I was on the ramen diet the whole week no and then doubt. at Elevation. And I just, like, I remember, like, fully bonking, like, being, like, no energy and, oh. like, so bummed because, like, yeah that that year oh totally and like that year i had actually won the like the overall for the half pipe series in the east ross was second yeah and then ross ended up winning nationals and going straight onto the u.s team and i crashed and was like 30 something and went to college so i was like fuck (laughs) it's funny you talk about ross because i actually was i spoke i got the opportunity to speak with him yeah uh, as a sales, as a rep for Coup and as a sponsor, yeah, yeah. you know, guy would find sponsors. And I, we chatted one time and yeah. he was over our budget. But yeah, I got the opportunity to chat with him. I don't know why you weren't on my totally. radar because you guys were probably, I don't know, he was the Burton guy and I had some ins there. But yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I used to talk, I used we, to, we used to sponsor JC James Anderson. So yeah, I, yeah. No, totally. I, I JC was on Coup forever. Yeah, dude. Um, oh, yeah. I get to talk yeah, to him yeah. all the time. He was super rad. Yeah. Well, no, and it was, I mean, it was cool because Ross and my relationship like continues to this day. Like we get together, you know, I usually go down to Vermont to play his golf tournament every year. He usually nice. comes up to Sugarloaf for the bank slalom that I host. And like we were, we were roommates on World Cup. Like when we first started like doing the ISF events in Europe, like we were roommates for the world championships in 99. Um, so we like, there was a while while, like when I went to college, Burton dropped me because they're like, "Oh, you're going to college." So, for two, for two, yeah, <laughs> you want to become so smart? For, get the fuck out! <laughs> right. So for for two years, I was off college or off Burton, and then that first event in Vail. Um, once I dropped out of college, I made the podium behind Brushy and Richards, and like the next week, I was back on Burton. <laughs> and uh, so the the and like that next window of years, like with like getting on the u.s team and just traveling um while i was still on burton you know ross and i were roommates a lot and we we traveled the world together and stuff it was pretty cool so um but then it was funny because you know like our paths kind of diverged a little bit like so in 98 for the first olympics uh the first olympic qualifier was at my home at sugarloaf and uh so there were three qualifiers that year. The first one was Sugarloaf, the second one was Bachelor, and the finals were in uh, Mammoth. And I podiumed the first event at Sugarloaf and then crashed the other two. Um, so Ross ended up going to the Olympics, getting bronze. And that same year, like in January, um, I was at my first X Games, which was the second X Games. And I was there for Halfpipe, and they had open spots. Uh, for border cross and basically don bostic who ran the advanced triple crown at the time was like hey uh seth you want to come race and so i was like yeah sure and so (laughs) i got i got fifth in pipe at x games that year and i ended up getting third in border cross and was like oh this is kind of cool because um basically it you know i i was like 
you know, working summer jobs and doing all that stuff and like didn't have any family financial support. So it was like, oh, I can make two paychecks a week if I, uh, if I make a podium in this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so r- really like that was the only reason why I started doing border cross was cause it was like, I think, yeah, I mean, I Palmer won that one in 98 and I ended up third, but I was really, you know, trying to pursue my half pipe dreams of going to the Olympics for half pipe. And, uh, yeah. And so I just started by like trying to earn an extra paycheck so that I wouldn't have to work some shitty summer jobs, washing dishes and stuff. And, uh, and that Glad you went there. Up. I was going to ask how you transitioned from pipe to, to border cross. I was kind of curious yeah. so in that, in that first border cross event that you were in, what, what, what were you riding? Were you riding your pipe board in that event? Yeah, I was riding my pipe board. I was on a, uh, it was Johan's board with the, uh, like the glowing cherry on it and the fire right. on the, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. Johan's first pro model. I was, that was yeah. what I was, that was cause I was, I was bigger, you know, I was six, almost six, two at that point before I'd compressed my spine so much. I've shrunk now, but, um, oh, but, but I, uh, yeah, I was I was bigger. So like I was riding like 163s in the half pipe cuz for me Terrier's boards were too small, like they were too narrow. So mm-hmm. I needed something a little bigger so I wouldn't boot out. Um and then eventually like before I got done with Burton, I helped them. I helped JG develop that like our working title was I think it ended up becoming called the Rush, but it was like our prototype title was the Bucket, but it was like basically making a a Burton balance that would fit you know, someone with a 10 and a half, 11 shoe. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. yeah. That was a good season. Good, good run of boards to balance. Who went for oh yeah. 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 Nice. I never rode one. Never yeah. Rode but well, and some of those year, you know, like then when I got back on, because I came back to New England, it was like, that was kind of when I got into R and D for the first time. And with nice. like, um, again, because I was larger, like I was snapping Burton's boards. Like <laughs> I would, I would go to a pipe session with literally like three extra backup boards in a board bag that I would just drag up the hill. Like if you were going to like really ride pipe or shoot photos or something for the day. That's awesome. And, uh, that one season, I think I broke like 30, 36 Burton boards. So like I used oh, to like, <laughs> drive back over from Maine back over to Burlington <laughs> to the factory I had an old uh, 86 Volkswagen Scirocco and I'd like show up nice. at the factory yeah. with like four, 14 snapped boards and uh, that was the year JG switched the cores to start doing instead of just vertically laminated like they started doing the trapezoidal stuff so that they wouldn't yes. shear the same way right. because like for like it basically like Abe Teeter and I um, and then Kurt Gurry who was up at Stowe we were all just a lot bigger to be riding those half pipe boards, like all weighing in like 180 or more pounds. And so we were just snapping boards. And so that was like really what led Burton to like work yeah. on cha- changing those core dynamics so that we could do more than like a run. Right. <laughs> like the, Fuck. I'll, I'll never, like it was so funny actually. Cause like I, we were, uh, I guess this would have been like the 96, 97 season. We were at a uh, U.S. Grand Prix at Snowmass. And uh, Matty Swanson, who ended up working for Oakley later, but he was kind of like the on-the-tour tech rep for Burton. He, okay. he gave me like the first prototype for one of the FL project boards, and uh, which was like the code name for fucking light. <laughs> and uh, 
and it literally made it one hit. Like I, he, like what? I mounted it up at the top. <laughs> I go, like I go front side air and like land and like basically put my heels through the board. And like I'm going to my backside hit on the second hit, and, and I'm just like, "What the there. hell is happening?" Yeah, like right. I can't, like my edge isn't yeah. grabbing and yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I kind of like eat shit out of the pipe, and I'm just like, Jeez. "What? Fuck!" You know. So I like, I take it off, and I look, and I just like, there's indents under both heel cups of the bindings where like I basically just like crushed the board like on the first landing on a brand new board so i like i walk back up i unmount it i put my balance back on and i was like yeah that's not gonna work for me but now and that was kind of like that year was like when all the r&d stuff with burton started for me which was cool nice yeah yeah, breaking them gives the ability to say well maybe try this maybe try that right (laughs) yeah right yeah oh yeah yeah I hear I never really broke snowboards. I broke a lot of bindings working for Ku and they had these manufacturers yeah. from China saying, Here, try these out. Like here next day, these are busted, like pieces oh, yeah. of crap. Well, it, I mean it was the same with Burton's bindings too, because it was like yeah. ride, riding New England half pipes that were just solid ice. ice. I mean, you might as well no, have been skateboarding. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, and when it was January, February, you know, five degrees below zero Fahrenheit, you just you land a little too much. Like we were just blowing up heel cups, mm-hmm. like blowing up base plates. But mm-hmm. it, it was uh, like Chris Doyle, who was in binding development there for like 25 years. Like, you know, he started relationships with these guys because like they were just trying to create something that they could keep on your feet for like more than a day. <laughs> but, it's, but it's awesome to think that these comp- these manufacturers would actually listen to snowboarders Opposed oh yeah. To, opposed to being like, no, no, we know what we're doing. We we, we got this down. Right. We're gonna add more of this. We're gonna add more of that. And we're but that's what Burton out. was. Though. I mean, Burton. Oh, was, totally. Yeah, totally. Entirely. No, yeah. and and Jake led that charge. Absolutely. You know, like I only got to go do the round uh, the roundtable meetings one time, but like we, you know, he brought in twenty five of us, and we all went and stayed at his house in Stowe and spent the week riding, and like would go through all their product development stuff for the following year. And they still do that right now. Oh yeah, they still do it totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and was, I said Burton was Burton is is what. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. like, yeah, Jake, that is what. Well, and really, like, mm-hmm. if you look at the history of snowboarding, you mm-hmm. look at like, you know, Tom. Yes. Like with Tom um, losing Craig at the very beginning, right? Yeah. Like you lost someone who you know was a few shed of credit shy of becoming an engineer and so you know jake got him and jake gave him the platform to help develop stuff and then that just got the ball rolling for everything that burton ended up developing he was really the godfather of of what's going on today it's totally it's it's, it it was a big gap where people really didn't understand what craig was doing what oh, yeah. his drive was, why he was yeah. in Baldface, why he was in right. you know, BC in the interior, why he was in the backcountry like that. Like, yeah. Well, the average person doesn't get it. Now they're like, oh, Craig no, Kelly, no, Craig totally. Kelly. But there's like, I didn't because I, I was like pipe, 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 ride pipe and ride, you know, oh, yeah. from Ontario. It's like, you know, you're riding hard pack. Yeah. And then I came out here and then the next, the next injection of the drug. <laughs> yeah. How? <laughs> so yeah let's take it to there what so then you you decide you win your olympics we watch some of those videos man you just, so yeah before we go past that because well, no, i want to i want to well, talk yeah. about the that's olympics. where we're going well, so, yeah. that's where i we're mean going. so for me like half pipe really 
kept going um, through like the 2003 season. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like in 2000, um, I had, you know, like I made a number of podiums. Um, I never won any or I, I I won smaller pro half pipe events, but never a World Cup or a pro tour. And like in 2000, I had a chance to win a World Cup in Berchtesgaden in Germany. Like I, I had won qualifying. So under the lights that night, I was the last one to ride. And I ended up dragging a hand on my cab nine on my last hit and got fourth. Um, you know, but like <laughs> another doing I knuckle, had, another doing knuckle hucks where you drag your feet across your hands across right, the ground. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> but so for me, like Salt Lake was definitely the goal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, late in, uh, like I was at, I was in Val de Sol in Italy in 90 oh. or in, in 2000 for world, uh, world championships. I just have to ask you, what's the snow like there? Or no, 2001. Uh, good, bad and different. I mean, uh, the funny thing with Europe, you know, is everything's so far South that if you're there, um, you know, your latitude is so far south that if it hasn't snowed for a little while, like even though you have a ton of vertical there, like the sun effect is so oh, intense. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, I, I've had tons of good powder in Europe, but also like that, like that year when we were there, they barely had enough snow to like host the event. And that was in January. So, um, but anyway, like that year, like I was in a really good position kind of a year out from the salt lake games of like my own personal progression. Right. Um, and I had gotten off Burton that year. I had an opportunity to help atomic start their mm. snowboard program. I seen that. I seen that one of the, you're, you're running a, riding a atomic. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the well, drops and it was, online. yeah. And it was just one of those things, you know, like, it was at that moment where there was a lot of money in snowboarding and I, you know, I was always going to in Burton's eyes at that moment, like I was always going to be a tear down. So like all of a sudden it was like, I got a chance to like go start something with them where I was like, okay, like I can get a $50,000 a year salary plus uncapped incentives. And, uh, I was like, I got to take this opportunity no because question. It, no question. yeah, no question. It was like, you got to make a living at it. And so I had, I don't know, I was trying to think I had probably like four or five years with them, which was awesome because we really had like really good support through the factory there as and well. The, and that's the time when all the skiing companies were, were oh yeah, they were, they finally fucking noticed that, oh shit. Well, they noticed, oh right? yeah, they, they noticed, noticed and, and they had all the manufacturing yeah. experience Yeah, and they, and they actually, to Atomic's credit, they put some yes. really good older, uh, Austrian snowboarders in charge of their program. So it was cool because you were working with nice. snowboarders. It wasn't like you were yes. working with skiers in a ski factory. Right. Um, and we awesome. had a pretty yeah, totally. Like we had a pretty cool thing for a number of years with them. Um, and, and they helped me bridge into free riding too, which was huge. Um, like they, you know, they supported that. So that was also a huge thing for like the early years of going to Alaska and stuff like that. Like they were supportive of me doing that and moving in that new, new direction. But so that year, so um, yeah, <laughs> that, uh, 
that world championships, which was 2001, um, you know, like I was one of four U S guys to make the team for world championships to compete in pipe. Yeah. And the night of opening ceremonies, my team manager from atomic and I got in a bad car accident, uh, in Italy. And, uh, we were coming up the pass. Like basically we had all of the atomic teams boards for the world championships. And, my team manager had been driving for a while. I had fallen asleep. I get woken up. He's like passing out behind the wheel. He's like, dude, you got to drive. So like I switch over and, uh, I made it like a mile and, uh, we were coming up this pass and basically like there was, it was like freezing temps, but there was a waterfall right next to this bridge. And it was one of the, uh, it was kind of like when Audi first came out with the Tiptronic shifting. So I'm like, I hadn't driven the car yet. And so I'm trying <laughs> to like figure out the shifting as I'm going up this pass. Yeah. And I go to turn onto this bridge and the whole road was just black ice. And so we hit the bridge abutment at like 65 miles an hour. And, uh, it, it like, if it hadn't been an Audi, like I probably no would have gotten killed, yeah. you know, like the, yeah. I had, I had my seatbelt on, the airbag went off, and I still broke the windshield with my head. Like the top of my skull was split oh, open from where I broke the windshield. Dang. And uh, all the, the stack, there was like 25 <gasps> snowboards in the in the car, oh. and they were behind the driver's seat because it was a wagon. So the, ba- the back seat was down. So they basically crushed my seat, bruised like 10 inches of my spine. Oh. Uh, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I had actually blown my knee out. Um, my right ankle like had ligaments torn in it from like the way it rolled off the pedal. Um, and then fuck, like it was just, it was a gnarly, gnarly thing. And the crazy thing was, was like, I just went into full shock adrenaline mode and my, my team, my team manager was like groaning and stuff in the passenger seat. I went to get out of my seat to go help him and my, and the whole frame of the car had buckled. Like the, the bridge abutment came so far into the engine cavity. Like the next day when we saw the car in the light, like the radio had got ejected out of the console and was in the back of the trunk. Like, like the, all the shifting linkage had come up through the center console in between the two of us. Like it was gnarly. So you hit that abutment uh, like dead center, dead center at like 60. Like I went, it was a right hand turn. I went to turn onto the bridge and the car just went dead straight. And we just center punched this thing at 65 miles an hour. So in Canadian talk or the rest of the world, a hundred, hundred, 110 K, 110, 110. So that's uh, wow, man. That's insane. Cause that's 110 to a dead stop in the space of the, you know, fuck. So you got, yeah. uh, So it's a good thing. I went up the center. My, the, my door was like crushed back in. I had to like, I ended up like kicking the thing out. I come around, get him out of the car. It's all like busted eating but knees all busted fucked. up. Yeah. No, no idea. Just went into knee full. And ankle. Yeah. Yeah. Knee and ankle all on the right side. And, uh, and your head smashed the top and head smashed. I didn't, I didn't know that for like three hours later. Spines um, all bruised up. Holy fuck. Dude. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. So it's the middle of the night. We're on this pass in Italy. Like I walk to the nearest farmhouse, pounding on the door. No one will answer. Come back, 
come back to my buddy Rick. Like we end up fine. Like cars are like passing us. Like yeah. people aren't actually stopping. Right. Like, and this is just a two way road. It's not like a highway or anything. Um, so, you know, maybe like 45 minutes later, a cab start stops for us and takes us back, um, to the town where we were staying. And so I end up like dropping Rick at his hotel. I, I needed to go back to the U S team hotel. So I walk back to the U S team hotel. So you're still uh, fucked up from the accident, of course. Completely. Yeah. This is yeah. like three hours later. I walk into my room and I had just a beanie on and, uh, I like ran my hand up the back of my head to take my beanie off. And when my hand comes up, it's just covered, covered in, blood. in blood. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh fuck. You know, like, cause I hadn't realized that my head was split open or that I was bleeding or anything yet. So team wow. doctors, all that stuff. They take me in for x-rays the next morning at the local hospital. I hadn't realized I knew that something really hurt in my leg and I couldn't place it because I hadn't had like a real knee injury yet. They, mm. I kind of thought that like either my tib fib was broken or something like that. So like they take me in for x-rays. There's no brakes. My coach drives me to Munich, puts me on a plane that day. I fly home to Maine, take like 18 days basically where I can't get out of bed. Um, and then at the end of the 18 days, I drive to Southern Vermont and go do X Games at Mount Snow. <laughs> I fucking knew it. <laughs> I, I knew that was coming too. <laughs> fucking badass. Uh, go do X Games at Mount Snow. I basically did one inspection run for Border Cross um, and then went and went through all the rounds, end up getting bronze, never had, never had to land flat, which is the only reason why I didn't know my knee oh. wasn't blown yet. The next week we go to Mammoth uh, for a Grand Prix you're it, still in pain. You still got. Oh pain. yeah, still still in pain. Like we go to Mammoth for a Grand Prix the next week. It pukes like eight feet. Contest contest is canceled, so no Grand Prix. So I ride powder for like four days. Oh. And then we fly to Japan um, for the next <laughs> World Cup. <laughs> and uh, first first run in Japan, I overshoot a landing in the race course there, and my knee like fully does the dislocate, and I'm oh. like, oh. oh. Fuck. So that was like February of 01. So I flew back to the States from Japan and went and had knee surgery and like started that whole process. And that was kind of like when it was like, okay, well, I'm giving up on trying to make half pipe for 02. And uh, so it took me like, it took me like a year to really recover from that first blown knee. And I then bet. I bet. Yeah, you, you didn't give it rest. You went and beat the shit of it some more from the oh, first. Totally. So well, you said the first blown knee. So well, yeah, I, 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 the heard, other one I heard that too. Years later, but, I heard that one yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so then the next winter, um, I kind of started the season slow, and then we had you know made it to like uh, X Games time, which was the first year that X Games were in Aspen. Um, like, and I made well. And you know I what's say funny? I, started, you know I what? say I started the season slow. I started yeah. the season by doing the first three half pipe qualifiers for the Olympics, made all the finals, <laughs> made all the finals, but didn't stuff, have right. any podiums or anything, you know, right, just kind of right, right. wasn't riding up to par. Right. Um, but then went to X games, had a, uh, had a, had a really good X games, like got silver and border cross, uh, won the ultra cross. And then, uh, I think that was maybe the first year that I didn't get a start spot for half pipe for X games. Um, 
but then young blood's coming in. Oh yeah. Well, Sean white, you know, like I mean, young blood's coming in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, and that was kind of like, for me, that was sort of where it started to become apparent, like where I had a few different nines and I was comfortable with going upside down, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, Sean started doing like the back to back inverted tens and I, you know, here I am at almost six, two and 185 pounds. And I'm just like, I can't make my body like Do flip that. and spin that fast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. And, uh, so that was a little bit of the writing on the wall, but then, you know, by the next winter, uh, world championships, Oh three, uh, again, made the pipe team, one of four guys to make the pipe team. Ended up making the finals. One of only two Americans, Steve Fisher and I were the only two Americans to make the pipe final that night. And uh, I think I ended up ninth. But it was like, you know, it was fun to like, you know, when it it had first switched from the 16-man finals to the 10-man finals. So even to like be at that level at World Championships again, I felt good about that. And then the next day was Border Cross World Championships. And um, that was the first year of ISF not being around. And so this was like uh, Xavier Delarue, myself, and Drew Nielsen ended up making the final or ma- making the podium. And we were all super pissed that the ISF was done because we didn't, we hated fists and we didn't, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I've heard, I've heard all about it on the, the oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but we were in the press conference after the podium ceremony and stuff. And that was when we learned that border cross was going to be put into the Olympics for 06. So mm-hmm. then that was a little bit of a turning point of like, you know, the best that I could ride just wasn't going to be enough in half pipe to make a podium anymore. And then, you know, I could go out and just kind of like go snowboarding and make the podium and border cross. And so that was kind of (laughs) like once it was on the radar that that was going to be Olympics, like that was kind of like at the end, by the end of that season, I was like, okay, like I, I shifted over completely. And then that next year, the 0405 was the first season that I hadn't, uh, hadn't done any half pipes. You fell in love with going fast. <laughs> well, I, faster yeah, and faster. yeah, faster and faster. And it was like, it's like Chinese downhill what you're doing, dude. <laughs> Don't you remember the ski movies? Well, Cause back, oh, yeah, you know, totally. we, you know, when we were kids, there was no real, there was a few snowboarding movies, but they had the skateboard. Right. The, the ski movie was out in the theaters, oh, not yeah. theaters, yeah, yeah. but it was out like movies. You could rent it. And it had the thing called Chinese. I forget the movie now and the name of it, but it was the Chinese downhill. And I'm like, I always oh, yeah. thought about that. Like call it, you know, snowboard, the Chinese snowboard downhill where we just smash each other and banging and right. That's, yeah. Love it. yeah. 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 Well, and the thing was, was like at that point, you know, there was so much crossover, you know, like help Terrier was still doing some mm-hmm. border crosses and Palmer was doing it. And so it was like that, but that's original that was Palmer's. That was Palmer's thing after a while. He, he oh, totally. It. He totally invented yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. And that's that was the thing. Like, there was, especially in Europe, like, mm-hmm. when you went to the Swatch events in Europe, and there was 200 dudes on the start list, and they were all, like, <laughs> hard booters? from different aspects of snowboarding. No, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, the hard boot, the hard booters, like, Martin Fernandez and those yeah. guys were there. Yeah. But it was, like, it crossed, like, the whole spectrum of snowboarding. And 
you know, guys like Andy Hetzel would do well. Palmer was killing it, of course. But yeah. then, like, you know, guys like Bertrand Denerov, who'd been the overall world champion a number of times and had a strong half-pipe background, like, there was there was still a freestyle influence on it in those mm-hmm. days. And then, you know, slowly, I feel like the fist killed that, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens with uh, major, not government, but major organizations like that. that like, control, yeah, yeah. And they come from the ski background, right? It's like, totally. You, know, you make a, you made a reference to Aspen, and I'm thinking, you know, my roots of snowboarding go back to like, Aspen didn't want snowboarding. They, oh, yeah. They didn't want no, it. And now they're like, oh, I come, was, come here with your X Games. Come I'm here, like, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. Like, you know, fuck you in a sense, right? But you kind of oh, exactly. embrace it, but. Anyways. No, and and I was at that first. Uh, it was it was actually pre X Games. Mm-hmm. ESPN hosted an event, and it was on Ajax, and it was half pipe, slip style, and big air, and border cross, and like, and I was there for half pipe mostly. Right. And I remember there was a big air under the lights, and like, I think Michael Chuck won it, but it also looked like he'd like. <laughs> fought mike tyson that night because he was like <laughs> yeah he he had a couple crashes where it just he took it right to his head you know and you're like oh my god mike i know and, uh, i got to work with him because he were, he rode for coup for a little bit during that oh yeah totally that time is double is michael Hux, and i was like man we yeah. gotta get him and yeah oh yeah i'm not gonna go down the road what happened or what why that didn't come to fruition yeah, yeah. but he was definitely he was, and he still, he still does crazy shit, but he was definitely a, Oh, totally. He moved. No, he, he was, he pushed, he the, was, he pushed the sport. He, he pushed the sport massively. Yeah. And like, um, and some of the, you know, like I, I forget, I think it was the 99 open where, you know, like where he started doing the doubles, like, you know, and that was, I just remember, you know, like those sessions, like he actually did it at a grand prix. Yeah a couple weeks before cause the grand prix was at Sunday river that year. And I remember that was the first time he ever did the double, but it yeah. was like, you know, those sessions were just epic pipe sessions to be a part of, you right. know, like no kidding. That was when the McTwist yeah. was big. And then, you know, he took it oh, to yeah. a whole new level with that Mc- Michael Huck. Like it is totally to make it, to get your like, a Canadian boy, of course, oh, yeah. he, you know, yeah. takes out of nowhere, comes out and rocks everybody's world with his crazy, obviously trampolining, you know, it was definitely yeah, yeah. In, inspired that beginning. Oh, yeah. Everybody, and I remember my trampolining experiences, you know, the trampoline to a right. backflip with a snowboard, and I'm going to get up in the trees four feet from the fucking trampoline, right? Oh, right yeah. Ground, oh, that hurts. Do it again. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I remember being at a, we I was with Michael Chuck. At, it was actually like Powers and Michael Chuck and I were all at a Boston trade show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, going out and drinking beers after the trade show and stuff. But I remember like they had just like a normal backyard trampoline, like mm-hmm. on top of a concrete floor. And he like jumped up and it was probably like a good 14, 16 feet to like the steel beam above it. Yeah. And like, I remember him like bouncing up, grabbing the beam, flipping his, <laughs> like hanging from his knees and then like doing like a penny drop back off of it to the tramp. And I'm just like, what, what the, the fuck, fuck? you know <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> like, are you a cat like what the yeah exactly fuck? i was like that was kind of like i mean i'd snowboarded with him a few times but that was like the first time that i was just like dumbfounded by his athleticism you know oh, you're yeah. like holy shit dude, yeah, dude. i hear you yeah that's yeah. awesome so then you from getting into that getting really deep into racing you get you're, yeah we're crossing right now we're kind of we're following your your tour here so you're yeah. you're now getting into Olympic status. Yeah, um, yeah, it was cool. It was uh, we had a really 
fun group of guys like moving towards that first one mm-hmm. and uh you know for me delarue was definitely uh i would say like my biggest yeah. uh rival but Absolutely. also like really one of my best friends nice. um he actually brought me he was riding for dina star at that point before yeah. uh rosy quicksilver all that stuff happened and mm-hmm. uh so Delarue actually brought me over to Dina Star from Atomic. He was like, um, you know, we had a really good mutual respect. It was three world championships in a row where he won, I won, he won. And I was second at both the ones that he won. And, uh, and we just, because I was kind of living in Europe for a little bit at that point, like right. I had a girlfriend on the Swiss team and, uh, <laughs> he um (laughs) yeah totally and uh he was just sort of like we just became really good friends Mm -hmm. and so i would go see him in france and then he was like kind of at the end of the season he was like hey i want you to like be on this team with me and um and it was it was really cool because again like you know they it was kind of like another factory that was like we want to do whatever you guys can so that you guys can win in torino in 2006 and so we he and i would go down to the factory in our test spain and you know we we they let us take a bunch of their highest quality uh world cup ski racing bases and so we actually had like three bases laminated into our race boards and like we he and i developed like it was his pro model but we were kind of like working on building that board together so that we would you know, our, the goal as a company was for like both of us to be on the podium in 06. And, um, and then he ended up, he got hurt early that season. Um, he, he broke his collarbone like in December or something. And, uh, and it just kind of derailed him like just enough that, you know, he was still riding super strong. Like, uh, I was trying to remember how it went. Uh, the time trial at the Olympics in 06, I ended up third. I think Mark Ruhauser from Switzerland won. And I can't remember if Drew was second or fourth or if Zav was second or fourth. But anyway, like it was like the four of us all riding really fast, all really tight right there. And like, so he was obviously riding at such a high level, but he was still, I feel like in a little bit of pain and like just couldn't like go through all the heats and stuff like that at that moment. Like, mm-hmm. cause he was still in recovery basically. Uh, so I've broken both. I know exactly the inability to yeah. whip your ass is, uh, <laughs> or take on a shirt, take off a shirt, yeah, yeah. change, eat. Like yeah. it's just, everything is, is a burden. Totally. It hurts forever. I do. I did that actually. I broke my wrist. We had these new boards out for coup and I was in the path yeah. pipe fucking around and then getting into the lineup. Cause I'm like, Hey, I got to get out riding cause trade show season's coming and this is probably right. my last time riding. And I did some, I did a little half cabin in the lineup and torsionally twisted and broke my collarbone Ugh. with a broken wrist. And, you know, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. here I am going to trade shows going, Hey, buy our snowboards. I got a broken wrist. They're <laughs> fucking awesome. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I hear, I hear that collarbone sucks for sure. I know all about it. Yeah. So De La Rue, yeah. he's definitely been a huge intra- influence in in what's going on with splitboarding and oh, totally. backcountry and world, well, and, and he was and, yeah, he he was the connection that brought me to Alaska for the first time. 
Oh, no um, doubt. Gee, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry I got in. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, your introduction to Alaska's <laughs> with De La Rue, like, fuck. Well, and it was, so we had a mutual friend who was a filmer uh, out of Innsbruck. And um, basically the filmer was like going and posting up in Cordova at Points North Heli. <sighs> and, uh, and he did kind of like a split window of like a month and a half where the first three weeks of it, it was Flo Orley, uh, Mitch Toddler, Zav and Eric Temmel, who was out of Austria as well. And then my other buddy, uh, Uli Kestenholz out of Switzerland, he and I came up to do like the second half of the filming window, but it was like, Zav's connection that connected me um, with this guy, Seppi Dobringer, who was a filmer. And then that ended up rolling into like a decade of going up there um, and a bunch of years of working with Seppi. And then mm-hmm. eventually uh, Uli kind of had his own production company going and we made a couple uh, films called Play Gravity and Play Gravity 2 that were like highlighting the stuff he was doing with the speed riding, but then also the Alaskan riding. And, uh, and then that ended up spinning off into like me starting to work with Warren Miller and doing, you know, eight, eight films out of the last decade, basically. And, uh, and and doing stuff with that. Building your your bromance with Mr. Kinger. (laughs) Yeah, with Kinger. Well, Mm. and so Kinger and Kinger and I go back a long way too. you know, Kinger was actually the first trip I did with the U S team. Uh, we were going to teen France for a half pipe event and, uh, Kinger was my first roommate on my first ever trip with the U S team. So that, that was also like where Kingwell came into my life. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And it just happens organically. That's how things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's awesome. So then you're, so what, what prompts you to decide to get involved with winter stick? Well, the, cause we're getting into that area. Aren't we not? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay. The <clears throat> so I had known the owners of Winter Stick for a long time. Um, they were also uh, alumni of CVA, so there was like a pretty close connection there. They were all like a generation older than me, so I hadn't been to school with them, but I knew them. Um, and they were based in Maine, like the mm-hmm. owners were based in Maine, and so like they were being manufactured uh, out west at the time. And basically they had been through some ups and downs with manufacturing. Like they, um, they bought the brand, uh, in 99 and then in 06, uh, they kind of had the carpet pulled out from underneath them. Like they were being manufactured by this place called focus up in Chicoutimi, Quebec. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They did a lot of, and that, that area did a lot of boards even for Burton for quite a while too. Totally. And I think, I think there's, I don't know if it was that factory or not, or I'm going to say it wasn't that factory, but that factory was manufacturing for a bunch of people. And so in 06, my now partners uh, basically came out of the SIA trade show, sent off a million and a half US for the pre-order, and the the factory closed its doors, took their cash, and was like, yeah, try to come to us in another country. What? And Yeah. And so at that point... Uh, my partners, Tom and Chris were, they were selling like 4,000 winter sticks a year. So it wasn't massive, but it definitely was quite large at that mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had kind of like, they had basically had a, it was like another organic relationship, another a college friend who had been 
the marketing director for Winter Stick uh, in the late 90s. And he had contacted my buddy Chris and was like, my buddy Chris was in the financial world and was like, hey, it seems like these guys are doing something sketchy with this financially. Will you take a look at the paperwork and stuff? And so he did. And sure enough, they were kind of like, backdoor taking things yeah they were backdooring <laughs> stuff and taking the pre-order from the japanese accounts and stuff and just kind of like turning that into their own private slush fund and they it seemed like they were fine with just letting the brand die and so my my partners and because of this connection with the guy who was the marketing manager who was really passionate about keeping the legacy of winter stick alive <laughs> um you know because of the history of dmitry milovich and yeah. really it being like you know, in, in the U S it was the first company. Like he, he predates Burton, he predates Tom. Um, and so they, they were really passionate about keeping that alive as a heritage brand. And so unfortunately that snafu with the factory happened in 06, but they, at that point they found, uh, this guy, Pete Wagner, that does Wagner custom skis outside of Telluride. And he was kind of willing to take it on as a licensing deal for a number of years. And uh, if an order came through the website, he'd build it and send it out. But really, they kind of like turned the, you know, they kept it alive for a while. But because they basically took family money and paid back all the accounts that had given them that money so that the brand wouldn't be in bad standing because they wanted to keep it alive and they wanted to relaunch it at some point. And so I had known these guys through those ups and downs. And at the same time period, kind of like when the Quicksilver buyout happened with Rosie, a bunch of us basically lost our jobs at Rosignol, which was the Rosie Dina star thing. And you know, like I never thought I would win an Olympics and <laughs> lose a sponsorship. <laughs> that right. Was, right. <laughs> but that was how that went with, uh, with Rosy because of the whole Quicksilver buyout and the French not having control of Rosy anymore. And so that was a bummer. Um, but that was also kind of like the time at which I started working with Kessler the following year for race boards, which ended up being a good thing for the rest of my racing career. Um, but at the same time, I had an old friend in Maine that I had grown up snowboarding with who was making custom freestyle boards out of Portland, Maine. And so at that point, I started going to my buddy Greg and just making custom powder boards for my trips to Alaska. Like, so I would race on Kessler, but Kessler really didn't do any free ride stuff. So I was just like going and making these custom boards with my buddy. And then a few years later, he went through the transition of like starting, a, you know, the life trifecta as he called it getting married buying a house and having a kid within one year and uh boom that is a trifecta boom. <laughs> it's a life changer that's it yeah yeah and he needed to he needed to stop making custom snowboards because like it was enough to support himself as a single guy but it wasn't enough for the family so right at that point i actually bought all his manufacturing equipment off of him and just put it oh, wow. in a storage container and you know, a couple years later, finally, over a couple beers, sat down with the main owner of Winterstick and uh, was like, hey, you know, it seems like you guys need some help with the board design stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I, I that summer flew out to Colorado and met with Pete Wagner and redesigned their line. 
and went through a year of working with him as the factory, but we were definitely low on the priority totem pole. So I, that following year, I was just like, Hey, let's just, I was like, I have everything we need. Let's start our own factory and, and take control of this ourselves. And, and so at, this, that was, at this point, have you, had you wrote, ridden a winter stick yet? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, okay. yeah, I had like, okay. I had, uh, I took, well, I mean, I'd ridden them a long time ago too. Okay. Like I, uh, trans world sent, Brian Aguchi and I to do the Transworld Powderboard test. Uh, we went to the CMH Galena Lodge in 2006. Nice. Um, and that was, it was funny because it was kind of like a pivotal trip for Aguchi too. Like Aguchi had never ridden powder specific shapes before that trip. And I had a little bit because of the time on Dina Star and they had a couple of like really progressive swallowtail shapes. So I had a little bit, but we, uh, yeah, we went up and rode pillows and stuff for four days together and basically so, had like the whole industry's quiver. We had like the basket on the heli with like 40 different shapes in it. And after every run, we'd <laughs> oh, like okay, take our bindings okay. off, <laughs> throw it on. And um, and we were with Kurt Hoy, who is the, uh, one of the editors, and Nick Hamilton, who was in charge of photography for Transworld at the time. The four of us went on this trip. And so that was for me that was like another you know kind of light bulb going off moment and that was you know coincided with the end of my time at Rosy, coincided with starting to make my own pow shapes um but i i did i rode kind of the traditional winter stick swallowtail on that trip in 06 and then it was you know a number of years further down the road when i was finally like okay like let's let's resurrect this and like let's turn this into something and that was when um we built the factory um up at sugarloaf like i i knew of a barn that the ski area wasn't using and i talked the president of the mountain into giving us a dollar a year lease and uh (laughs) there was a nice there's a chairlift coming out of the other side of the factory and because it was such an old chairlift uh that's awesome they couldn't break their electrical supply off so we actually couldn't get charged for the electricity either because they didn't have a different way to monitor it so we got free free electricity and a dollar a year lease on uh this barn i mean we we sunk a bunch of money into it repairing a bunch of the the roof that was failing and stuff like that but we kind of but still a low overhead operation a low overhead (laughs) and we got a killer space and like i took everything that i'd owned for four years or something in a storage unit at that point and we got it all up and running and now we've been in there for five years and how inspirational is that every day you go in there's a chairlift reminder of why you're doing this right totally and it's awesome in the winter time because like for the guys that are actually you know like working on the floor building boards like at their lunch break they can just like go out the go next door in the building get on the chairlift and go and get some turns so it's Dude, you know, I, like I'd seen manufacturing in all these different places. Right. And like for, for me, like it was actually, you know, like I'd seen it at Burton, which was rad, but you were still, you know, 45 minutes from Stowe. And then, mm-hmm. you know, really actually like in Altenmark at the, the Atomic Factory was like one of the places where like that community was multi-generational mountain users that like could go at lunchtime to the hill right there and for me that really left an impression because like then also at you know going to the rosignol factory 
the Rosignol factory was not a factory of workers who went on the snow. Like they were kind of down in a warm part of Spain. And so like for me that having a disconnect between having the people that build your stuff and having them not be end users of the product, um, yeah. I think is a problem in the industry. Like that, like, you know, Welcome and especially with now to China tooling and pricing. To- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now that everything's in China, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, mm-hmm. those people like, they don't give a shit if no. the quality of the board is right. Like no. they're just trying to make as many of them as they can in the shortest amount of time. And it's possible. funny. I, I alluded to this in the previous episode, but when I was, when Ku was building their own boards, I got to experience that as well. I was there with colors and I helped shapes and build cores and design yeah. that stuff. And then they put me on, you know, being a sales guy, I was selling them at the, out on the, you know, on the street, as they say, and doing, doing rep demos and all that stuff and doing customer service and wearing a lot of hats at Ku Sport. And and, yeah. and they put me in the summertime building snowboards, and here I am at the end of the line grinding the bases. Right. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, "Dude, you need to stop. You're grinding them way too much." You're. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you're, you're like, no, I'm trying to make it flat. Yeah, <laughs> because I'm gonna go matters. to the fucking. Res- I'm gonna go to a store, <laughs> and the skier who's selling this stuff is gonna say, "Look, dude, look how not flat this board is. This bases, because right. our skis yeah, that come out exactly. of Atomic or wherever are like totally fucking pristine, right? Totally. Anyways, and then I got put on edging. <laughs> <laughs> well you can grind the edges too much too <laughs> no no no. In, no no just gluing them gluing them down oh just gluing them yeah, yeah bending yeah. them in the shit in the, in oh, the machine yeah that was my job for yeah. it so yeah i yeah. hear you it's like you gotta have cut you know quality is key and it still is now and that's what makes a good a good brand and a good product having access to your own stuff and being in. well it is and like so one of the things for us too was like you know this might sound super hippie or whatever, but it's like the, <laughs> the quality of the wood, you know, the, the fact no that question. energy yeah. transfers through the wood. Yeah. And like, for me, like we used to have, uh, you know, I hate to say this cause I think in general they make good snowboards, but there was a nitro that we had as an example where we just basically tore the top sheet off of it in the factory. And in that board, there were 36 different finger joints in the core. Wow. And so if then you have was, all the... And that wasn't a, a foam injected at the time. It was actual... No, no, it was a wood core. It okay. was a wood core board. Okay. Like okay. just a, um, you know, you know, just a board that like happened to be around and we like, we're like, well, let's look and see what's in this. You know, <laughs> and it's like, you're like, oh, oh holy shit. shit. It was built, it was built with scraps. Yeah. And, uh... And so that for us, you know, is kind of there as a reminder of like, you know, we go to the lumber yard and hand pick every one of the pieces of wood that becomes part of the core. You know, we don't do any joints. It's all tip to tail so that like the continuity, you know, I mean, it's like you, you look back at how wood is used in manufacturing and it's like, you know, New England has a ancient, you know, manufacturing uh, history as far as North America goes. And a lot of that was in a ton of hardwoods and, and a ton of softwoods, you know, like the giant, the pine trees were like what Europe's shipbuilding industry was built off of. And Mm. so like Maine specifically had a, a type of, of pine tree called the King pine and it no longer exists because it was like all stripped off the land and sent back to England to, (laughs) to build all their tall ships. And, uh, but so we wanted to have total control over that part of the process. And like, I really believe, you know, like that, that makes a difference 
you know, not to anyone, but like it makes a difference to a discerning end user who like understands how they want a board to feel. And it's part of like why, you know, the biggest part of what I wanted to have us be able to do was that like, yeah, we have a line, but ultimately, um, every single thing we make can be customized. And that's the type of thing that like big companies just can't do. And so like one of the, you know, this, this will be like a sound totally nerdy because like if I would have ever thought of myself when I was a skate rat as a kid to be like, you got an idea for snowboarding from golf. But, um, (laughs) but when I became a, uh, I became a Nike athlete for five years and I'd worked at a golf course at Sugarloaf and was like, I don't understand how people spend five hours out there. And, uh, (laughs) I still don't. Yeah, I know. I, I get addicted to it now because I think it's just part of my mental, uh, fixation with things. But anyway, I ended up becoming a golfer when I got sponsored by Nike because the team manager was like, Oh, I I think like the way that you look at things, you'd actually get into this sport. So he started sending me clubs and balls and all this stuff. And it was like, well, right for free. And so like, if you can play golf for free, it kind of adds a better component to the sport. Why not? But so (laughs) then I, (laughs) then I had a, uh, a marketing guy that I worked with through visa, um, that was in charge of like, he, or he was like a step below the head of all of visa's Olympic programming director. And, uh, he left after the Vancouver games to take over partnership marketing for Callaway golf, um, down in California. And so he brought me down to Carlsbad, California to do like a custom fitting, which I had just never done before. And so I really realized then in 2010, how like every person's metrics of like how you do something and how your body fits really uh, has an outcome over your end enjoyment in a sport. And so the light bulb went off for me the day that I was at Callaway as to like, you know, the biggest problem in snowboarding is that all these major manufacturers who are just spitting as many boards as they can out of one mold, uh, don't take foot size into account. And so, the idea that you can like have a perfect waist width for your foot size was something that I brought to winter stick because, you know, like for me, like say if it's me going to Mount Baker to race, um, the, probably the biggest influence on the outcome of my result there is going to be like how perfect those turns are. And like, so once you get to start experiencing turns where you're like, perfectly matched to the width of your board so that you're not booting out your heel cup isn't hitting but your board isn't overly wide you start to have like this whole other experience with turns right that's a that's that's an amazing analogy that you brought on there because i am a guy who i mean i had my addiction with golf and yeah you know i went i went through the process of you know buying my first set of clubs from an estate sale you know yeah basically a you know, like somebody's yard sale and then right, totally. evolved into eventually getting my clubs custom fit for me, which I did notice a huge difference in. Oh yeah. Of course, you know, but, and then, and well, then I'm the rider who does have a big foot, you know, like I yeah, wear totally. a size 11 and a half to a 12 boot depends. Yeah. 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 You know, so. yeah, and there's, and there's almost nothing in the marketplace for you out there at that at that foot size. Right. And so that, you know, and I had 
I had had that frustration when I was at Burton because it was like in the late 90s in the half pipe, like while the half pipes were still small, like on those original pipe dragon pipes, you know, at 12 foot transitions and then later at 14 foot transitions, the quickness of your edge changeover was so critical. And if you had, if you had any drag, you were just giving up amplitude. And so for me, it was so frustrating because like, you know, Terrier's board was the best pipe board, but like I had to downsize like two and a half boot sizes to be able to fit on the width of his board. And so like I, I used to lose my, my big toe toenail every winter. You know, I would, I would cut out the whole liner where my toes go. So it was like (laughs) the, the pain and the cold that you went through to like be able to be on the properly fit with board for myself like through those years became such a thing that like now like you know i and this is like when i talk to people about like why should i get a winter stick i'm like well what what size is your foot you know and and it doesn't it really doesn't matter what size it is because it's the same way like my old u.s teammate graham watanabe he used to have to get burton to make him a custom driver x that was like a men's six because his foot was so small and oh, so, wow. like, we made him a tiny board a couple years ago that was, like, the narrowest thing we've ever made. But he's just like, this is unreal because I'm, like, properly pressuring my edges. I, you know, like, and I, I have another buddy that grew up who had smaller feet, too. And he always complained because he's like, ah, I can't ride this wide, mm-hmm, all these wide mm-hmm. boards that you have. Because he's like, I just, yeah, he's like, I'm I just can't pressure eight. the edge properly. Yeah. I'm in a size and, boot. Yeah. So it's it's a huge difference and it's the biggest thing that I'm like any board we have like at no price increase we can provide for you at your exact foot size so what's funny you say that about customizing because that's exactly where you got the idea from the gentleman who was doing winter stick for a while you're, you're saying he would do custom stuff so you've, yeah, kinda, totally, you've, you've kept that alive well, as well yeah. yeah exactly like he did custom skis and it was within a combo of like I'd had the experience with the golf fitting in California. Then I was making boards with my buddy who his whole business was custom boards too, but he was more on the freestyle side of things. And then as we start, you know, like then when we went to a different factory, like even though he made custom boards for all or custom skis for all his ski clients, he wouldn't do that for us in production runs because clearly it's like, a pain in the ass of course but we we took some of the ways that he did his construction um and set up all of our tooling so that we could do it in our own factory where there was no cost difference for us to change widths because we do a different type of molding process yeah because you got to build a template it's uh it's a stainless is it aluminum stainless stainless steel i think they are well that that's what most people do and we avoid that whole process so that like every one that we make is and i won't tell you exactly how we do it but <laughs> everyone that we no, we're, make, and we're not asking for that it's, yeah it's, yeah it's, but it's, everyone that we make we avoid that overhead of how all the companies that just want to spit it out of the same mold over and over buy those aluminum well they it's a block of aluminum that's like insanely expensive it's like 15 grand per mm-hmm, block mm-hmm. And so we've avoided that whole part of the manufacturing process and have a way of doing it without that cost. Um, so we can, you know, from one board that goes into the press to the next board that goes into the press, like 
we'll do our own production runs when we're doing production, but basically we can switch like from one board build to another that there's no cost difference and there's no mold to, to change. So from that, now we're going to bring us into split boarding. Yeah, yeah. All that to get us to where we are now. Well, exactly. I, just, I, I just wanted to pop back <laughs> just a little bit because when you got when you first got involved with Winter Stick, how many boards were in the lineup? Right. That's uh, a good well, question. Yeah, they had you know the traditional Swallowtail. Mm-hmm. Um, they had Tom Burt's Pro Model, um, and then they had kind of like their ST series, which was like the mortal man's version of the Tom Burt, <laughs> like not just in the one seventy three. Right. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So basically like that was the what 173 they... by the way. <laughs> oh nothing. I that was like my first AK trip where I took a winter stick. That was what I took and it was killer for Alaska yeah, but yeah. you know. Um but it, you know and Tom has his own ideas of his own shape because of his own foot issues and like wearing a certain boots that he could size down forever too. Um Oh yeah. But that so that first year that I went to work with them, I had been developing a shape for a few years with my buddy in Portland, and so I made my first pro model um, that year too. So basically, we had four boards in the four boards in the lineup, and now there's a bunch of additional shapes that I've added, and we've you know added a bunch of different swallowtails. Added I redesigned two years ago the old school swallowtail shape to make it more user friendly. Um, which board is that some, now? Is that the Valair or the Party Wave or something? Or? No, no, no. The just original. the actual, oh, the original. The original yeah, Swallow the original. Tail. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the the Party Wave, the Valair, the, uh, for next year, the Daydreamer, that's like three more Swally shapes that I've added. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, you know, like, but the thing is, is it's like, it's so fun. We have uh, the guy, Rob Liu, who's our head engineer, is really bright and uh, really gets it. And so our ability to customize things um, has become amazing. And so it's kind of like I keep trying to like develop a new shape, like an, an overall new, like what's my next <laughs> favorite <Right. laughs> free right. ride board every year. Right. Um, and so, but it, with him, it's really fun because like even changing little things like the nose profiles and things like that, um, by creating, um, by creating different blocks and stuff like that for the press. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, really fun. it's pretty sick when you talk about the nose profiles, because when you look at the oh, yeah. original Dimitri board, like how pointy that was, right? Totally. <laughs> Compared well, to what you guys have going on now. No, and, and we have a bunch of different ones. And then I also keep trying to like throw something that's like not like what Dimitri did, but like pays a little bit of homage to it each year, you know, where you're like, um, you know, like I, one of the first things that I did once we started our factory was to like modernize the old round tail. Then I got back to modernizing the swallow tail, um, and then adding all these other shapes in and, um, yeah, it's just it's it's like dream come true to be able to uh, to just make fun shapes to to well, go you, shred on. You've been involved with that side of the industry for a long time, from atomic, yeah, up. Well, and and that's the thing of like being able to do it in a small manufacturer um, actually gives you so much more freedom because 
people like Atomic, people like Dina Star, people like Rosignol would look at, oh, well, we've got to make at least, you know, 3,000 of this shape to justify doing the wow. expenses of the molds and the things molds like and, that. So, yeah. like, and the sizes for, and us, for us to be like, oh, let's just, let's do a one-off and see how it works. And then, and to not have that overhead um, is just amazing mm-hmm. because it gives you that freedom to experiment. Exactly. I know I can see some of your... Split boards as well. There's a lot of crazy shapes. Yeah. Going on. So it's it's well, kind of crazy because you you have, I mean you have all these shapes and and all these different top sheets and whatnot. So is it hard for you, Seth Westcott, to pick a favorite <laughs> board out of the line? Like is it is it yeah, or, or is it just like it depends on the day, Darren? Like where it, am I it riding? Does. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I like I used to love to be like, oh, this is the quiver killer, and it's like, why would I want to kill my kill my quiver? <laughs> I want to like put as many in as it possible, and then yeah. be like, okay, what's today? You know, that's, um, that's my life. Yeah, but I don't, yeah, get, yeah. I don't get to do them in your back in my backyard or build them on my own. I gotta buy them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Too many. No, and it, and so it's it's becoming well, and that's that was one of the other things is that like we wanted everything to be available in a split board because ultimately like I, I don't want to like have an experience of just riding a resort board and then going to something that's like completely different for when I go backcountry. And so, um, or if it's the difference of like, if you're going mechanized backcountry where you're riding a solid versus going touring, um, where you're riding a split. So like everything that we have is available in split. Um, and then that has been really fun because I can work on dialing in shapes on the ski hill and then know that like when I go for backcountry days or, you know, like say it's a extended touring trip or whatever, like the last, I don't know, five years or so I've been spending time at the white cap hut, uh, up North of Pemberton and, uh, like to know that you're going to go in for four to seven days of touring and you still get to have your favorite board, like regardless of whatever the conditions are is, Absolutely. Uh, you know, such a difference. Um, you know, split boarding for me was kind of a funny introduction. Um, my first split board trip ever, uh, was Antarctica. Oh my <laughs> so, what? Yeah. <laughs> do tell, I'd, let's hear it. Yeah. Right. So, uh, can't again, see too many is, slopes there. No, well, no, it's massive on the, the, uh, yeah, it's wild. Like look at Google earth on the Antarctic peninsula and it's just all it is is mountains. It's right like, the, <laughs> yeah, it's the continuation of the spine of the Andes, uh, oh, as it runs into the Antarctic. All right, continent. Okay. All right, all right. And, uh, so again, this is like another, like Jeremy and, <laughs> Delarue uh influencing my life like those guys went in 09 to do this boat trip and Delarue came back and was like oh Seth you gotta go it's amazing you know and and I was just like okay but and so this this group that they went with at that point it took that group like two years to fill the boat now it's an every year thing um so I went down on the second trip uh that the Ice Axe expedition guys did in November of 2011 and I had never been on a splitboard before so I uh oddly enough the only splitboard I had was the last board that Craig had developed with Burton I had bought it used at a seat like 
our homecoming weekend at Sugarloaf every fall, CVA mm -hmm. has a giant ski swap sale. Okay. And so I bought this old Burton Frontier splitboard that when I went in 11, I mean, Craig passed away in 03. So the thing was at least, <laughs> you know, I think it was like an eight year old splitboard that was still brand new. Like it was being sold at the ski swap with the sticker on it. Oh, wow. And, uh, so like I, I had, I had bought this thing and then it had just kind of been like sitting in my garage in the stack of all my snowboard hoarding, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, it had been sitting there for years and I was just like, well, why not? You know, like I'll, this is what I'll take. Like if it was good enough for Craig, like good enough to go on this expedition with. So absolutely. the first time I ever actually like put it into split mode put skins on it and toured was in november of 2011 down a long way away from home uh, <laughs> no doubt in, in antarctica <laughs> <laughs> and uh so spent seven days splitboarding uh we would you know you'd come back to the boat every night and the boat would move while you slept and you'd wake up in some new bay and um, take the yeah, Zodiac right. from the ship to the shore and just kind of decide what you wanted to do. And, um, and that was my intro to splitboarding, which was epic, a, a crazy place to do it. Well, yeah. yeah. I'm looking at it now. So I take back what I said before. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, like, it's, it's insane. No doubt. It, yeah. No. The, uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you guys some photos from that trip for, you know, stuff to use for sweet. Thing. Yeah. That'd be cool. it, it was, uh, it was just unbelievable. And I like, so it was kind of funny. Cause I was also like, I wasn't the only split border on the trip, but I was the only split border, uh, in my group. Um, I went, it was, uh, Chris Davenport, who's, you know, big mountain skiing legend. Yeah. And, uh, this guy, Jim Harris, who's a photographer, um, who, a couple of years later had a spinal cord injury that, uh, while trying to kiteboard across parts of Patagonia and, oh, uh, has recovered from it, but like is an unbelievable story. Um, and then this guy, Noah, Noah Howell, who's, uh, part of the duo of brothers. That's the powder horror film company out of Salt Lake. Um, so like a lot of people that were on the trip are just kind of there as tourists and they're going with guides. And I got, keyed into this whole thing you know delaru told me i should do it but then it's a bunch of my guide friends from alaska who were actually guiding all the other groups and so chris and i were basically just like turned loose for the whole time so like we we didn't have a guide we were just like they'd let us off the boat every day and be like don't Bye. be too dumb you know guys make sure you come back yeah, don't kill yourself exactly um and so we just had this like unbelievable week like the four of us um going around and and scaring the hell out of ourselves climbing up stuff and um and then and i'd never like this was also my first uh you know i'd, I'd done a lot of years in alaska but i'd never done self-powered um backcountry and so it was my introduction to ice axes my <laughs> introduction to using crampons to so get you up were, things you were splitboard mountaineering essentially then right? i was splitboard yeah. mountaineering and chris on earlier your first, that, on your first splitboard trip my first splitboard trip and so that <laughs> that summer Welcome. uh chris's chris's previous Wham. trip had been <laughs> yeah 
Chris's previous trip that summer had been summoning Everest and skiing down Everest. And no so fucking way. So yeah. I'm trying to keep up with him, which was like yeah. <laughs> an ungodly hard. Like no I, I'm just like, he must've just been up. a monster on the up then. Oh dude, yeah. he was just a monster and like running up <laughs> things where I'm like, are you freaking kidding? Yeah. Uh, just lap yeah. lapping this thing. Like I'm that's like, funny. The guy who got me into splitboarding, that's he's one of these guys who loves to just do these big fifty K runs and stuff. So oh, yeah. when we're yeah, hiking yeah. or when we're in the background, he's just always miles ahead. Totally. Because I'm yeah. twenty years older. So I'm just like, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll get there. Oh yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. That's crazy. Well, that's sick. So yeah. It that, was just unreal. Yeah, no doubt. Totally unreal. And so, so then it, then that just kind of like sparked a whole other <laughs> light bulb for me of being like, oh, wow. Like, and then that, you know, I went on a different expedition with those guys a few years, years later up to Svalbard in Norway where we took a smaller, like an actual sailboat and cruised around the whole archipelago up there and, you know, access stuff and, <laughs> um, it just, yeah, yeah. Another sick trip, yeah, um, yeah. but it did, it kind of like that trip to Antarctica, like opened my eyes to the possibility of self-powered, uh, backcountry access. And then that's been, you know, so, in the back of my mind ever since. Yeah. Right. The new, again, the new addiction. Um, yeah. Totally. So, so at this point, what is your history with avalanche awareness education i know you've been in the backcountry did some heli drops yeah a lot of guys back then it wasn't really a thing you got a guide they take care of it you know you learn as yeah. you go right but now it's, yeah things are a bit different so I was, give us a bit of that I history hate, yeah i mean i hate to say it but you i was know. ignorant for a long That's time <laughs> um and then the unfortunate thing too is that like alaska lulls you into a uh oh yeah not realistic sense yeah. of what snowpack sticks to right. um so like I, I worked with great guides in alaska like i would you know watch them dig pits try to like gain all the knowledge i could from them uh, you know a lot of times in alaska you're just not going to get any activity unless you've had like a really weird weather event right um because you're so close to the ocean and the snowpack bonds so well um and and you end up doing yeah, just ridiculous stuff, you know, like that <laughs> line, that line that you had referenced, um, that was my first run of the year in Alaska in 04, that video clip. Oh, the um, Alla Hole. Yeah, no, no warm up straight. We'd actually flown. I was slightly hung over from staying in Seattle the <laughs> night before, um, flown up to AK, got into Cordova at like noon took the van out to the heli base and back then they didn't observe the changeover day. It was just like, if the weather was good, you were flying. Right. And our, our buddy, um, Dean Conway, my guide at the time, um, not to be confused with Dean Cummings, but also a Dean Conway was like an old ski film star from the early years of Alaska and all that stuff. And just amazing knowledge of the place and funny, crusty, uh, crusty dude that we just like hit it off right from the first trip the first year and so this was like year two coming back and you know he comes running in and uli and i are there and so like, get your shit on boys it's all time you yeah, know i, just, I read like, i read that in your uh your, oh yeah so you, you go out and you you know we're kind of like doing the circle and 
in this valley and we kind of like filmed most of the lines mm-hmm. the year before and yeah. this was the major obvious massive line that uh you know had been done one other time had never been done by snowboarders and uh and he's just like you know like we haven't even put our feet in the snow yet <laughs> for that spring and he's just like this might be your only chance to ever get all a hole. And sure enough, like we've never been back to it, you know, <laughs> like, oh, shit. but it was just straight off the plane, straight out of the heli blind roll over into, you know, 3,500 feet of face. And you're like, Holy fuck. Here All right, so we everybody go. <laughs> everybody out there go on YouTube, watch the video. Cause oh, it's, dude. it's an insane line. And so I'm, I'm kind of yeah. curious, like, what were you thinking uh, when you were looking at it from the chopper? Just like, what? well, it was one of, it was one of those things. Cause we were still in the Polaroid days back then. So right. no digital cameras, no way when you got on top of it to like zoom in, in the back of your digital camera and like, look at lines, just right, like right. <laughs> a Polaroid that shows you very little detail from way too far away. And you're mm-hmm. kind of like, well, All right. I'm just going to, progressively work right and hope that i can see down this enough that uh i can find my way (laughs) and uh yeah just kind of lucky enough that uh i didn't make any major mistakes i was able to get (laughs) myself through it yeah 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 because watching you drop into that and and picking your line just like what we had had we had the discussion a few weeks a week ago you and i about that how yeah yeah. so who was who's on the radio is that uli on the radio yeah that was uli on the radio uli we rochambeau at the top he went first uh and then yeah like he but it was kind of like also typical of some of my friends who were like the psychos that they are in the world um <laughs> you know you hear them on the radio it's like ah it's pretty good there's Piece some stuff yeah. yeah there's some rocks to go around or you know <laughs> have fun and you're just like Thanks. you're like yeah a little maybe a little more info would have been good on that but no, uh no, no, no. Um, well you picked your way down and successfully yeah. so that yeah. was really yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty epic um but yeah just like those guys and you know like really the cool thing at pnh there was a bunch of guys that were all the snow science guys from squaw valley in california uh will payton's one of them uh kip gar who is no longer with us but like a bunch of really good dudes that uh you know spent years and years and years there but also were like guiding in the states and doing snow like doing all the snow science for the ski patrol at squaw and uh a bunch of knowledgeable guys and then so i i gleaned as much as i could from those guys over the years and then as soon as i got moved up here to canada i did abby one abby two um but it was you know it was hard in those days like of being full-time on world cup and basically like wrapping up yeah yeah like scheduled from november to the end of march yeah and then I would just basically like fly home to Maine, drop off the race shit, grab all my free ride shit and head straight for AK like two days later and then go post up for the month of April. And so, you know, I went for years of being up there and free riding in Europe and, you know, like free riding in South America and um, all over, but like never, never having the time in the winter to properly 
do my education. And so like I finally, um, as soon as I moved up here, um, started all that stuff. Well, and you kind of had to up formally here, right? because of the snowpack oh, and yeah. what you got to deal yeah. with up here, right? So totally. Well, I mean, so, and you're, it changes. you're in a, you know, you're in better snowpack where you are compared to where we are. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Pretty but it's still, you know, like this year we had, you know, like weird slow starts of the year. And so then you've got those hoar frosts under the, all of it. And right. It's persistent, you know, and so, yeah, like it's just, and that's the thing now that I get to stay put more is that you can actually like pay attention to something over an entire season, Mm -hmm. Um, and which is we're learning the history of the snow as well, right? Totally, not just one year, but over the past on the zones and where the yeah yeah. where it moves and what it does. So, how long have you been in Whistler now? Uh, Are you in Whistler? You're in Pemberton. We're both, um, okay. we, because of the kids, we have a place in town that facilitates, uh, oh, right. yeah, yeah. being at the ski hill and getting the kids to school. Absolutely. Um, and then last October we got the farm property up in Pemberton. So we're kind of like, we're mostly there and we'll be there kind of in the warmer months to run the farm. And then once harvesting will finish and stuff in future years, then we'll kind of transition back here for the school week and, and then you, be you- able what are you farming? Well, nothing at the moment. <laughs> <We're>, uh, <laughs> what are you hoping to farm? Yeah. Well, we're we're working on creating a permaculture uh, farm, and so the property that we got had been owned by a doctor, and it was just kind of like his escape from being in the medical professional in the city. So the land had never been worked. He had no, you know, there was no. Um, he had basically like this old stone hut that he had built on the property back in the sixties. And, um, then when he passed away, his kids didn't want it. Uh, it was bought by a Kiwi guy who built a house on it. Um, and I think was probably hoping to capitalize on the marijuana industry and didn't get, (laughs) didn't, didn't get the permits. So then he had overextended himself on the house so he sold it and we got it last October. And so like this summer we've just been, you know, like I drilled irrigation well, like running lines, like I planted two different orchards, uh, for fruit trees to kind of see, um, what will weather. Like we kind of got a bunch of different ones and like we put like 65 fruit trees in the ground, but didn't want to go all in on one thing or another to be sure, like see how they go through the winter. So like, um, a lot of it this year is kind of like getting infrastructure in place to be able to start doing stuff next year. Um, and so one of, one of the intentions is to, uh, you know, clearly be able to have fruit and stuff that we grow. But one of the things that, um, we're just kind of looking as things get screwier in the world with (laughs) (laughs) global warming and everything else. It's like creating a place where like, you know, eventually our kids would have a little bit of a safety net if things really all go to shit. So, um, I'm still waiting for the pill. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just a pill and that's it. I'm good. Don't need to eat. It's only nutrition in a pill. Done. Right. No, you just would, had to drink, it would drink be good. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, I'm not going to kill myself. You... I want to sustain my life and live long. <laughs> right. Are you, are you, are you going to do bees on your property at all too? Or yeah, you, yeah, we'll, we'll do bees. Um, the, what, you know, we're kind of looking at like, what can we do as cash crops that can be 
least invasive. And because a lot of the Pemberton Valley is either beef or potatoes, um, and they rotate, you know, where, which fields the beef's in, which field the potatoes are in, because there's like a five year turnaround on growing the potatoes right. in the fields. Right. Um, but if you like, if, you know, we've been reading a lot the last couple of years. And if you look at like what's going on in monoculture farming, like, you know, people are saying like, yeah, there's only like a decade of soil health left in North America because of the way that people have done this shit. And so like, we're actually learning from this guy, Jeff Lawton, who's a, uh, from Great Britain originally, but is living down in Australia. But he was kind of one of the creators of the permaculture movement. And so we're basically kind of like understudying with him and having uh, voice calls. And he'll be on like nice. Google, Earth, Google Earth looking at our property here in Pemberton and like influencing us on how to set things up to have a sustainable permaculture setup. Well, I've always, and so th- I've learned in the past couple of years now, or the last five six years you need mentorship no matter what you're gonna totally. do you need mentorship yeah whether it's absolutely growing on every the ground, walk of life every every yep. you need four or five you need 10 of them in your life every aspect of totally. your life, you need a mentor yep um, and that's key to like, yeah, they used to be called grandfathers <laughs> right exactly <laughs> my grandfather came no from, but it's it's so true war. and we don't yeah and, and we have so much in modern society lost the learning from the elders in our society no and we move, That's we move you can away learn everything from, on YouTube. Now there's 150 right. people who can tell you how to do it, whatever it is you want to do, man. Totally. And I'm not but advocating we, for that. I'm just saying it's just so hard to sift through it all to find who's oh, got the right answer. Right. And well, and, and we are so much, you know, we are a mobile society. So like a lot of us, like say all of us with snowboarding, something is in general drawn us away from our home communities to be in a different place. So then like, yeah. you know, I, I unfortunately lost both my grandfathers relatively young, you know, yeah, like too. by the time I was in seventh grade, I didn't have a grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so like, you don't get to have those grown up learning experiences from that elder generation if they're not there in your life. And right, you know, right. like my, my father passed away prematurely oh. six years ago as well. And so like, you know, even things like that, it's like, you know, you just, the way that society is these days, we are getting more and more removed. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. Like well, one of the most important things we can do is to find mentorship. that proper mentorship. Um, well, you know, and I've, my brain's wrapped around this concept for quite a while now is to know where you are, you need to know where yeah. you came from. So to know where totally. you want to go in the future. You know, yep. why do I act this way? Why do I think like this? Why Why is right. my life going in a downward spiral right now? You know, Or why is it going up? Well, yeah. look at my grandparents. Look at your family. Look at your upbringing. And that's really, yeah, I've done lots of thinking yeah. about that. And not on drugs yeah. either. No weed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's it is it's really important to to have that understanding and then where you can um find out, you know, where you can gain knowledge from. Like I I have a older friend in the ski industry who owns a bunch of resorts and he's been a mentor of mine for like the last 13 years and he's mm-hmm. taught me a lot about the ski industry and you know, he always, one of the first things that he talked to me about was that like one of the best places you can be in your life is if you have a mentor and a mentee. 
um, because there's already going to be knowledge that you have that you can pass to a younger generation, but to be gaining that knowledge from an older generation. That's, is that's huge. the true trifecta of success. Yeah. So you've, yeah, got, yeah, yeah. you've got yourself. So the, the trifecta of success goes like this. You've got a mentor, you've got a peer partner, and you've got a mentee because you're yeah. teaching, you're learning from the old, you're, you're teaching yeah. to the wise, I mean, to the young and the, as you're teaching to the young, you learn again. And then you've got a partner that's driving you to push forward more. Exactly. Your yang type of thing. That's and, your, that's your yeah. trifecta of success right there. <clears throat> that's, that's the other things I've learned, not from my father, because my father was a, you know, white collared worker work or blue collar worker. Yeah. Welder. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> welder. Blue collar. And my, you know, my grandfather came in from the war in Ontario, uh, during World War II through the concentration camps and they got shipped up here to Ontario. Wow. And they wow. became amazing. Like he just became, you know, he couldn't speak English. Even when he died at whatever, I think it was 84, uh, you know, he couldn't speak English very well. So, you know, again, later on in life, and he, he was a mason, so he used to do a lot of um, concrete and all that stuff. And that's why he built literally as a Pollock. His, our grand, my, I remember my grandparents' house, dude, you'd walk in, and every year he'd add a fucking extension so from the walkway. So <laughs> the first it was the front door, and then there was a front door on the 45, and then he made another porch because he figured in his mind it gets minus thirty five, minus forty in Northern Ontario where I'm from. Yeah, and yeah. And he's like, totally. "Well, if I put all these doors, I'm going to keep the heat out, the cold out." Right. Oh fuck! Like <laughs> it was hilarious, man. It was five doors to get in the house, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, again, later on in life, I'm like, man, there's so many questions I want to ask my grandfather, my grandmother about that era. You know, living through yeah. the camps and you know dogs and and, and all that crap and getting oh, shipped out and get the fuck out of the country and, you know, all that right. stuff that they went through. And that's wild. Like, and, and, well, I, and I see myself, things that I do, I'm like, you know, that's why I act this way. My dad comes from a, a background. He never abused me physically or mentally, but his grand, his yeah, parents yeah. did because that's what you did. You fucking smacked your kid, right? Here's a pan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they, they used to tell me they cut all the willows around. So the, you know, the, even when my grandfather was like four foot seven or whatever, and my yeah. uncles were huge and my dad's small like me, five foot six. They still yeah. cut all the willows and man, it was like, they're going to beat me. So, Right. But you think about for your grandfather, it was probably so therapeutic yeah. that he had control of his own space, yep. you know, that like for him, it was like, in his backyard and the whole nine yards. Yeah. yeah. Well, and even if it was like building another door, that probably made yeah. him safe, feel safer that no one was coming through it to get him. You know? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Man. yeah. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Those are the things you don't even think about. I wish I could ask. Right. So yeah. So no, we're, I mean, we're so fortunate in our space in life to be yeah, able dude. to like no not have those kind of fears. Yeah. And, and to find a mentor to change your brain. Totally. <laughs> and help build a business, build a life. Now you can, right? That's the whole beauty of it now. So Seth Westcott yeah, exactly. from gold medal Olympic border cross winner to farmer. Farmer. <laughs> That's pretty sick, man. And in a well, great my, part. My wife's family, you know, my wife's family was in agriculture um, out in Saskatchewan. And so... Her dad just phased out of that a couple years ago. So it's like, again, like we have a mentor to help teach us things while he is here and alive. And, um, and he's, you know, helping us in ways that he can too. So it's amazing. That's great. That is awesome. Yeah. 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 I know my grandfather used to keep his potatoes in the ground an extra year. Yeah. And he'd be like, check, check, check out these fucking, he wouldn't swear, but look at these potatoes. And they were like (laughs) the size of boulders. I'm like, right. You just I put these ones here an extra foot deeper. I knew exactly where he left them. And that was his joy to come and show me these things and build the sauerkraut. That's so rad. And, yeah. Eating all that old Polish food was amazing. Probably yeah. why I'm diabetic now. 
<laughs> no doubt. Fuck. All that storage. All that shit. So do you, uh, so Seth, do you, do you get to do some touring on a regular basis now? And Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. No. And that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, like, well, actually my last week of snowboarding this year, I was back in at the white cap hut right up here. Beautiful. Um, North of Pemberton. And yeah, I came out on a Tuesday. I had uh, Ken Achenbach and I rode on the Friday on the ride for uh, Jake Day. And oh, then yeah. I took Saturday off because I didn't realize that the pandemic was going to shut the hill down Saturday no evening. And uh, so, yeah, like my four of my last five days of riding this year, we're touring out in the backcountry here. And, and where we are with the farm, um, we've got, you know, about between five and six thousand vertical in the backyard so i'll be able to tour right from the farm straight out uh, dude up. that's my literally that's the, where I'm going. Like, yeah, I mean, like literally strap it strap into your bindings at the farm and just start walking. yeah the, the pemberton dude. ice field is literally right above us so it's yeah, like it's up to stupid. all of that stuff so yeah, yeah we're living and in my, the you know spot. my wife my wife's been a acmg there. guide yes. for the better the better part of her adult life oh, so wow. we Oh, we yeah. tour together and uh and we're looking forward to being able to do it um, with the kids yeah being able to do it with the kids and just Beautiful. like it, it's our passion too i mean we yeah. you know we've kind of looked at each other a bunch of times and been like you know four years ago we were in chile touring <laughs> like oh, yeah? this week you know and i was like i know we'll get to travel again and like she she wants to go back to lagrave and shred in europe a bunch more and is she a snowboarder um, or a skier? She's a, she's a skier, but she does okay. both. Yeah. Um, she started, yeah. She's got a she's got a couple winter sticks, and um, of course, of course, we we went to yeah. She, we went to bald <laughs> we went to Baldface uh, right before Christmas. Uh, we came out on Christmas Eve this year, uh, yeah, but that pictures. was kind of like our yeah our pre Christmas present to ourselves oh, because nice. it was actually the first time since our daughter was born that we went somewhere alone. Um, we had a good friend and her mom came and stayed with the kids for like five days so that we could do the drive over to Nelson and back. And, um, and we're, you know, as parents, we're trying to like carve out time for ourselves to be in the mountains together you have, you because have to, you have yeah, to. that was, we met in Alaska originally. And then, you know, like we are, that's our whole lives. Like she was a mountaineer and a heli ski guide. And like, I was on a snowboard my whole life. So like, we want to be sure that we prioritize getting to go shred together. And she's an amazing big mountain skier. So it's like, it's so fun to be able to go do that stuff together. Yeah. That's killer. That's awesome. Yeah. So we, we do this little thing every once in a while where we ask somebody like, uh, when they, when they're on their tour, what's in their pack, you know? Yeah. So, so what do you like to carry? Is there anything specific that you like to have that maybe nobody else has out there or? Oh, not really. I, I try to go as light as possible. <laughs> oh yeah. Good call. Yeah. No. And it, like, it depends on what, you know, it depends on where I am, what the day is. Um, you know, like the, because my wife has worked in a bunch of the huts in BC and like, because like for us, like that's one of the places we like to go. It's kind of nice. Cause you know, you can just do, you know, a couple few hour turnaround. And then like, as the light shifts, um, through the day, come back to like our same base. So like, like say if I'm in at white cap, then I'll do a bunch of stuff like just going as light as I can. But if I'm out there, um, I'm pretty bad with like taking much water during the day. Like I'll, I'll carry a water bottle around the whole day and never drink off of it. So I've like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll, uh, 
you know, I'll try to be sure I've got like one thing of cliff shots in my bag and, um, a little bit of water to keep myself hydrated. But other than that, I'm more about like, you know, having a pair of gloves for going up, a pair of gloves for going down, having a backup pair of goggles in case I beat her it. And, uh, yeah, just going as light as I can. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, kind of curious too, are you soft booting or are you hard booting? I am soft booting. Um, I, I, you know, I'm curious, like I saw the posts from Phantom this week. I, I am, uh, you know, like I have struggled mightily on side hills <laughs> in windblown, wind scoured yeah. places before when I'm watching buddies that are with me on skis having no issues no um issues, yeah. <clears throat> yeah so that you know the side hilling component of it and then you know it's terrifying to be in like my normal soft boots like when you have crampons that are more like tied to the boot than like fixed to the boot like how <laughs> skiers get to yeah, have it so yeah. i i'm definitely curious to try it i you know for me coming from a freestyle background my whole life i think it's hard to give up on that but Agreed. I, but i but there's got to be something like you know i watch chad otterstrom using them and riding freestyle and it's mm-hmm. like there's got to be something to it i think you know that and that's the guy all those, the most all those t- and pow in the of everybody totally it's totally sick. and all all those all those technologies have progressed far enough i'm sure i could like yeah. um yeah. you know manipulate and drill out a boot enough that i can still tweak a method Mine, and bone it bone out Andy. we're hearing that yeah. they're getting softer but with that same component of being stiff like it's, it's the rigidity yeah. where you need it but the softness where you yeah. where you want it type of thing but then I'm, totally the thing that like with that that we're learning because we're the same right we like soft boots yeah but, um and i yeah, know yeah. i know i was a skier for a long time before i got on a snowboard and, and one of the things i loved about being on a snowboard was i didn't have to fucking wear those boots anymore Oh yeah, that I was really happy about. But now hearing more and talking more about these guys who are guiding in the backcountry, and you know, rightly so, they're getting the number of days in that uh, that you know they're getting the big advantage out of it. But when you listen to them talk about the advantages on, especially the touring part of it, like you said, on the side hilling, yeah, and then as well as the efficiency and the glide and the walkability right. on the up part, you know, um, yeah. So I've heard some guys say you lose a little bit of the surfiness on the ride down, but uh, right. but like you said, the new boots that Phantom are coming out with the slippers look like yeah. they're going to be super comfortable for that. I, I can't wait till Burton comes in with the step-ons. I'm going to say it right now. I'm putting it <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. universe. Ken told yeah. me it's done, but whether right. he, he, he does have some inside sources, that guy's totally fucking lo- I can't believe how connected that guy is. He's like, I'm a has been oh, yeah. washed up. I'm like, dude, you're still there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, I know. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of indifferent as well. And I know we need to, you know, even for yourself, you know, coming from two guys who were still new at splitboarding and your background with all of snowboarding as a whole, you really got to focus on the ride up with your splitboards. You got to make it easy to go up. It's all about because you're spending ninety five percent of ninety percent of the time going up, five percent totally, ten percent yeah. going down, and you know, I don't want to. I'm not going to say anybody's na- any company names because I don't want to screw anything up further for us. Yeah. But there's a couple brands that have done some reverse, you know, reverse camber stuff, and that doesn't work. And they've learned that, right? That's yeah. As much as it's great for yeah, Powell, yeah, totally. like in the Powell, oh, it's yeah. this fucking sickest shit ever because you're totally right. surfing and your edge controls. You know, you're you're not submarining you're above I've, and yeah. uh but yeah that's and i love that everything is moving in that direction the market's changing people are putting a lot more tech into it and totally it's, it's 
awesome. I think this is the way of the future for riding to be sustainable, to get off of this whole, you know, chair lifts and getting in the, yeah. getting a sled in the back country. Yeah. Sled in the back country. Great to get you to a certain location, but the skidding right. that next, next position up to get that really good un and getting to know the snow under your feet, you know, we're learning about you know. Oh, sl- totally. The sled just lifts. It's, it's a dis- it's a it's a fake out of what the snow is like. Disconnect, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and it's yeah. I mean, that idea of being able to assess lines slowly as you go up, that you can like pick a turnaround point if things aren't good with the snow. Like, there's so much more. You know, I I like the peace and quiet of it. It's like, I mean, I like the hill for the mileage that you get in a quick time with the chairlift, but it's like, you know, honestly, like I, my favorite days of the year are the days that I'm touring, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, because it's like, I'm not going touring in bad conditions. (laughs) No. No, you exactly know. right. No, we're, yeah. learning, we're learning that. Like, well, yeah, if it's blowing sideways and minus twenty five, you're not out there. Yeah, no, exactly. No, but no. you get these. You know, for me, like you get these magic moments and the best days and the best runs, like when you're having that time to be out in the backcountry and in the combo of the conditions coming together. So being being there with people that you like, yeah. not having a bunch of yahoos around you um you know like at the ski hill it's like it's so much better i and so much more enjoyable for me on those days when i'm getting myself up the mountain so here i'm gonna <clears throat> something we talked about uh previously you and i uh what happens on the dark starts what's what's yeah, the yeah. one thing you told me so <laughs> let's say that again like what well when you read yeah, the name I, you're like oh yeah and then yeah we, no i thought it was a rad name because like for me um my last touring day of the year, the spring was a dark start. Um, and I was, uh, going out with Greg Hill, who's famous in the ski world for doing uh, a couple million vertical feet under his own power a few years ago. Um, so again, finding another crazy guy to try to keep up with. Um, (laughs) but yeah, we were Greg Hill and I were in together working together for the few days. Like I was kind of there shooting stuff with a friend, uh, new friend, Matthew Bruins, who's a, photographer out of Pemberton. Um, but we were in at Whitecap this spring. And so going out with someone like that, who, you know, has unbelievable backcountry knowledge of, of BC and the coastal zones and stuff like that. And, uh, but we, we had a dark start to go get this East facing face that I had been looking at all the years that I've gone into Whitecap. Um, but it's, you know, it's a good walk to get there before sunrise. And so it was, we had a really fun morning and then we actually had to take the heli out of the lodge that day at like (laughs) noon. So it was just, uh, it was one of those things like snow conditions were good. We felt really good about avalanche stability. So we wanted to go spice it up a little bit and get on something that was a little more playful. And it's a perfectly East facing thing. So to like be there for sunrise and have light to, to get the shot was awesome. And those, and yeah, it's like that idea of dark starts. Um, do you guys is, hear uh, that music in the background too? <laughs> <laughs> always. There's always a soundtrack. That's right. right. Oh, um, but yeah, that, that idea of the dark starts knowing that you're going to do something special and that's what's, you know, even if you're exhausted, it's worth getting up always. way too early in the morning to, uh, to go get that, that first light and that, um, you know, that kind of magic thing that you've been looking at for a long time. Love it. 
Boom. Yeah. I can't think of a, Fucking a Mike better way to wrap right this there, right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, dude. That was fantastic. Uh, right on. You're absolutely. welcome. Yeah. We've got to do, do this again. Yeah. you got to go out and teach us some some turns because I know Achenbach was telling us she watching you make some turns and how you, you're positioning your shoulder and all these different things. Uh, like, I, I taught him a hand trick. Exactly. <laughs> two, give us the hand trick. As, he was like, he was give, like, what? Give us the hand trick as we go out and we'll end this on that. On that yeah. Well, Pro tip. I mean, on it, honestly, it was something from watching Craig over all the years and, um, that, you know, I would always like for me thinking about free riding or even just thinking about body positioning and stuff like that. I was all, you know, Craig for turns was always a person that I emulated and uh the knees but they're together i was just gonna say you put your knees down. Well, together. yeah, yeah <laughs> i mean i don't always do the knees close so together cool, but though. but how low he would get yeah, like right. the, yeah. um you know I've, I've been i've done some riding clinics which like i never went into like the instructional part because you're too busy but like i i used to go teach the instructors clinics every year at home at sugarloaf and i would talk to them about body positioning and one of the images i would show them was kelly slater going heel side at pipeline you know right. it's funny because i was just going to say that's what craig's style was Looks very like, surferish yeah. right i mean very he looked influence. like a surfer going down exactly yeah. and and craig i used to always have that picture of craig in my mind i'm goofy craig was regular right. you know unfortunately kelly's regular too i don't i don't get how the best people aren't goofy but it, um. well, that's funny that you say that because I'm a regular rider. We hear the but, opposite because I'm a goofy. Yeah, I'm a regular yeah. rider, but I, most of the best people I know are goofy footers for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and so it was just funny because I would always like, you know, you'd go out and ride. I'd go out with these instructors and ride with them for a little bit. And they, you know, have a, whatever the picture in their own head of what they're doing. And then you like show them a picture of what they're doing. And they're like, oh, I didn't think I looked like that. And, <laughs> and uh and so, but what I would talk to him about is like how to properly stack your body anatomically so that, you know, like to watch Kelly do that heel side turn and get ready to like either go into the barrel at pipeline or like go back up and smack the lip, like, you know, without a, without a binding and having anything mechanical behind him, it's like the only way that you can do that is to have you know, that 90 degree bend of your foot and your ankle coming up and then a 90 degree bend of your knee going back. Um, and then being that low that like you're mechanically stacking your body in this position so that, um, you can either absorb more or you can extend for power. But, you know, so many people ride standing way too tall yeah. and, and they lose that yeah kind of perfect range of the natural shock absorber that your body is. And so then the other thing that I like to do is just with my lead arm is basically, and this is something that Fawcett taught me early. It was like being quiet with the upper body that you don't want to move things around a lot. And so it was, I was out with Ken one day and, and we were, it was like one of those super cold weeks. We hadn't had snow in 10 days or something. And it was just bulletproof hard pack. And he was like, Oh, I keep sketching out on my heel side turn. And I'm like, well, you're a, you throw your arms all around and <laughs> B like if you drop your arm, like you think of your arm as a percentage of your body weight. Like if you keep that lead arm low on heel side turns, it's like putting more of your body weight into that edge. Right. And so like he tried it all of a sudden was like, 
oh my god like the light bulb went off Ken, and he just like kind of freaked fashion. out Oh yeah, totally. In <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me but ask so you. Oh no, go ahead. No, and so like I, you know, like I think about it. It's you know, like this year at Baker, like I just try to like keep getting into my proper body positioning for all those turns, and that's how you build speed. Is like having a clean edge through all those turns and using the building of momentum, turn after turn after turn, to like be that fast. And so it's like I'm always. You know, every time I go to Baker, I always think of Craig because, like, that's where he was from, and like all those iconic moments of him slashing hemispheres and stuff like that. When I was a kid, that you'd see in the magazines or in the movies, like, I go to Baker and I always think of like trying to snowboard like Craig, and so that's like, uh, you know, it's just one of those images that I always have in my head of like Craig when he would be racing would always have that low front leg or low front arm. Mm-hmm. That's sick. So I'm wondering, uh, your two gold medal wins, Yeah, you know, watching those runs, um, coming from behind in fourth mm-hmm. and yeah. taking the win at the end, like, is that, was that, do you think that had anything to do? Were you, did you realize that at that time? Is that what allowed oh, totally. you to propel I, to the front of the pack like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I had, uh, so the week before that I won the time trial at X games by almost a full second. Wow. Um, so I came into Vancouver super confident. And when I crashed on my first time trial run that morning in Vancouver, I basically just had to stand up a run to be sure that I got through the qualifications. Um, so I kind of knew that whole day, you know, I knew I was riding better than my bib number, uh, told the public. Um, but I, and I'd also like, I made a mistake in the finals the week before at X games and ended up with silver, but really I had given Hall in the lead because I fucked up a line over a blind rollover and had to hit the brakes and let him pass. Um, but so it was for me that, that week in, uh, in Vancouver, like, you know, I, I'd won the, you know, I was, I think it was like 0.86 seconds ahead of second place in the time trial at X games the week before. So I came in there so confident and like knowing that I was kind of firing on all cylinders and, um, and you know, yeah, the coming from fourth was weird because I just didn't have a lane choice the whole day basically um, because of the time trial mistake that morning. And if you, if you go back and watch it, I don't make a move until the fourth turn Mm -hmm. and our tactical coach, this guy, Jeff Archibald had called me right before the start and was over the radios and was just like, you know, there's two pinch points up, up, up top of the course. He's like, I'd kind of like it basically if you held off until turn four and then he was in a broadcast booth. So he was getting specific splits through the whole day. So he had access to the split time. So he knew how fast I was on the lower half of the course. And you watch it like Nate goes down in turn four and then I passed Tony, I passed Tony in turn five. And then for me, I knew setting up, um, I'd been dragging heel cups a little bit. Um, there was kind of a flat turn down low. I forget what number that one was. Um, I think it was coming into turn seven or something like that. And turn seven was the one I just really like set up all the speed for that straightaway to catch Robertson by, almost using no edge on that heel side berm. Like I basically just came in there knowing that if I greased that flat bottom and I could kind of, I was kind of like being able to let it float in that turn all day and it was accelerating a ton. 
Um, and so I just kind of knew if I like set up the speed that I would be able to catch him over that. Yeah. And you can see that, that when you watch away. the video, you can see that speed come on there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Sick, dude. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> this has been fun, man. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Likewise. So well, good. and if, if you guys are coming to the coast this winter, let's go ride. See, there we go. Done. I already said it. I got to be there yeah. for a month. Yeah. That's right. All good. Let me know. Pack so the van. Yeah, teach me a, f- yeah. a thing or 10 about riding faster. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll have to geek out on wax and uh, all totally. that stuff because that's yeah. a fun thing. Well, and i got a ton of demo boards here in the wax room. So, so down. I've always wanted to <laughs> yeah. ride a winter stick, dude. There's yeah. no question. Well. It's one I've, I've, I've seen them since, oh, 93? 93. Yeah. yeah 93, 94. Because um, they were never really big. They, were, they had a little bit of presence in, in Transworld. But nothing serious, Oh, totally. Because Transworld was really, back then, it was really more about freestyling and jib bonking. There's something well, about and, that and swallowtail shape. The first time I saw one, it just, I fixated on it. Oh, and yeah. It just, well, and there, there was a funny story that some of the original winter stickers, as they called themselves, told me <laughs> because um, they were all riding this gully under Alta in Utah. And it was the first time Jake Burton had ever come out west. And Jake was basically still on the snurfer holding the, you know, like he was on a Burton, but it, he was, he was riding with the rope on the nose and all these guys who were all skate punks out of salt, <laughs> salt Lake were literally heckling him being like, drop the rope. Um, cause they, cause like, cause Dimitri's boards at the time were so technologically further ahead that yeah, they were like no heckling Jake Burton, basically like calling him a snurfer. And, uh, <laughs> and they were these these guys were all skaters from Salt Lake and you know like hanging around Dimitri's factory down there in Salt Lake but all had boards with metal edges when Jake was just on a little you know bent piece of wood with right. a with a rope attached and so um and then these guys also because of the time period you know like Dimitri got out to salt lake in 72 when he started building boards which was five years before jake started so that their little scene there was so far advanced that like they didn't call it snowboarding they called it winter sticking because that was their you know there was no other scene like you know there wasn't snowboarding as a sport when like people like jake started showing up like they called it winter sticking because Mm -hmm. that was what dimitri had called it and that was what they were doing in their minds it makes sense it's a stick in the winter yeah well it's perfect totally yeah yeah absolutely yeah cool i'm getting a call so that means we need to get this done and my battery's (laughs) about to die perfect Perfect. hey seth yeah again thank you so much this has been no worries let's talk again soon thank you That was an awesome chat. Thanks, Seth, for taking the time to talk with us. As always, you can learn more about Seth in the show notes. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at darkstarts.podcast to find out when our next episodes are dropping and to share your killer pictures and videos with us. You don't want to miss our next episode where we talk with Steph Nitch, co-founder of Palace Snowboards. Shout out to Scott Martin of Groundswell Marketing Podcast and Pat C. for helping to make all of this happen. Peace, everybody.